Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Hope you will check out our new presentation on sex, mating, family, and how to avoid being lunch for a praying mantis. So, uh, a nice letter we got. Um, somebody wrote in and said, uh, just wanted to say thank you again. I've only been listening for six months, and my perspective is radically changing. Your efforts has really made me see that I was using libertarianism as an excuse to be angry. Yes, I intellectually agreed with the arguments for peace and freedom, but somewhere along the line, I was corrupting that process to the point where I was no longer participating in a productive conversation. Well, I think we've all been there. I was attacking anyone who disagreed, and it was so that I would feel better about myself while going through extremely hard times. You have helped me realize fully that I was not being objective or honest with myself. I was being self-righteous and self-destructive. I am finally regaining confidence, and I am motivated to seek therapy. I found it so poetic and beautiful and triumphant that one man's example can resound through wires across an entire planet and make such, fu- make such a fundamental change in perspective. In saying that, I hope that this email will give back just a little bit of the emotional satisfaction you've helped me to find. Now that's, I mean, what can I tell you? It's a wonderful and moving, uh, tender, courageous, and uh, fundamentally ethical and philosophical letter. So thank you so much. Uh, please, of course, uh, keep me coming. Now keep me uh, honest with your positive and negative feedback. I always look forward to hearing from you. And uh, thanks again. That's a, a lovely, lovely message. And um, I really, really appreciate it. All right, Mr. Mike, who do we have on first? All right. Well, up first today is Robert. Robert wrote in and said, a repeated, repeated pattern in my life has been the pursuit of a certain goal, the attainment of that goal, and then disappointment. Once I have what I want, I find out that it doesn't really make me happy, and I'm back to square one. What are your thoughts on this kind of pattern? And is this something you've experienced yourself? Yeah, I think I think one of the... There's, there's a certain type of people who tend to achieve something and then feel dissatisfied with that achievement. And that tends to be, there's a, a phrase for it, homo sapiens. It's all of us who feel that way. And uh, so you're not alone in that. Was it Martina Navratilova, the tennis star, or someone who said, the thrill of victory lasts about 15 minutes. And um, when you have achieved some uh, great goal, then your body sort of resets itself and says, okay, we're now going to take that for granted. And what we're going to do is move the goalpost. This is why the moving goalpost is sometimes such an annoying thing to experience intellectually in a debate, because it happens to us all the time. Uh, There's a reason why, you know, we didn't just like, Oog has fire. We will never need anything else. (laughs) It's like, Oog has fire. Fire warm. Fire, nice. Fire cooks things. Fire, boring. (laughs) Must find something else. And that is a basic reality that uh, human consciousness, I believe, is progresses through a series of triumphs and dissatisfactions. Uh, I think it was (laughs) Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most accomplished human beings in all of world history. I mean, what he achieved in just about every field he put his mind to, is nothing short of staggering. And uh, I read, actually I read, 
a book which was a collection of his sister's letters when she was in a convent. And uh, he also, I mean, he had terrible lung problems. Um, and anyway, an amazing, staggeringly gifted and hardworking human being. And uh, he said at the end of his life, or close to the end of his life, he said, I, I regret that I have made so little use or such little use of the gifts that God saw fit to grace me with. So even <laughs> though he achieved every conceivable thing that you could imagine uh, in any field anybody would go down in history, and he did this in multiple fields, he's like, eh, I could have done better. <laughs> you suck, Da Vinci. <laughs> this is like more morning mantra or something like that. Apparently his uh, his uh, inner alter ego was stifler. But um uh, yeah, it's it's natural. It's natural. Um, we are we are goaded on by the sweet taste of success, which we believe will last a lifetime. And then, you know, half an hour after we reach that milestone, it's like, eh, I mean, eh, <laughs> let's let's move on to the next thing. Is that bad? I mean, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I, it seems to be kind of uh, inescapable. Now, that's not to say that we can't achieve greater peace of mind and self-satisfaction and so on, self-knowledge and all of that is is important. But to me, success, thinking that a success is going to leave you content for the rest of your life is sort of like saying, well, this next meal is going to be the best meal I've ever tasted, so I'm never going to be hungry again. It's like, nope, it's great to have a better meal rather than a bad meal. But you are going to consume it, you're going to use it up, and you're going to need to eat again. The best water I ever tasted. I'll never be thirsty again. Oh, actually, wait about an hour. You'll probably be thirsty again. So um, I don't think that that's inevitable, like the dominoes of dissatisfaction. We don't have to surf them all the way into the black hole of the grave. But I think that to expect a kind of satisfaction that is going to last long beyond an achievement I think is uh, not uh, not realistic. Does that make any sense to you? Sure, I agree with everything that you said and and uh, and more. And would add that the um, that wasn't my exact question. There was a piece that was missing that was more personal to, to it than that. And what I meant to say is that when I find a passion and I pursue it doggedly, let's say, and then discover that it isn't what I thought it would be. For example, um, I, was a, I was a singer and a musician through the 80s, and uh, I thought, hey, well, you know, all you have to do is be really good, and everything will work out. Well, that really wasn't true, and it has a lot to do with, well, the people that you know and the, the, the cliques that you hang with and being lucky and having the right connections and having all these other things, my, my, I had an impoverished map of the world in relationship to what I thought it was really like. And this is a pattern that I've repeated um, throughout my life. I mean, I thought I wanted to be Bruce Lee for a while, didn't we all? And then I took a lot of martial arts classes and found out, well, you know, the people who are really good at martial arts actually like to hurt people. And so I'm going to dump that. I don't want to be beating people up. And um, so then I get into IT and I self-teach and I get into back in the dot-com era. Um, uh, we, we, all of us were getting in by our bootstraps and it was a lot of fun. And we were hanging out on IRC and BBSs and we were playing with Linux and 
all that stuff. And I thought, well, all I have to do is to uh, self-teach myself up and I'll be fine and everybody will want my services and that sounds good. And so then I get into the dot-com um, social circles and I find out that it's saturated, not completely, but it has a, a known tendency for a lot of um, um, abusive managers and immaturity and, uh, you know, you'll be... I'll, I'll be dealing with a, a senior manager that's wearing a kilt with purple hair who's got a plastic um, medieval sword on his belt uh, with wearing flip-flops telling me something I don't even understand. So so that was really frustrating. And then in the, into going on and on, even my, even my current uh, love and passion uh, even has a lot of the same characteristics. I think I finally found what I want to do again. And so... I just think, hey, I've just got to get the skill. People want it. I can sell it. Everything's going to be fine. But no, but no. I feel like uh, like uh, Charlie Brown when Lucy keeps pulling the ball uh, away from him and he keeps on trying over and over again. Right. Okay. Okay. Is there more that you wanted to add to that? Well, I, there's, uh, there's, I just wanted to provide examples. Of the, 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 there's a subtle difference. I mean, I agree with what you said before. But the, the difference here is personal, and it, it has to do with, I think, probably an impoverished map of the world of really understanding the difference between th- about what I think reality in life is and work in business and what actually is. Right. Now, you have an adverse childhood experience score of nine, right? That's correct. Right. Yeah. And that, what effect do you think that's volumes. had? Yeah, well, what are the effects that you think that that has had on your, as you say, impoverished map? Well, it, it, I could write a book on it. It's not, and it's not funny. Um, but uh, within the context of this conversation, I think well, because I moved around so much and I didn't, I didn't have a chance to form uh, trust relationships with uh, peers, and I, I really have a. It took me a long time to figure out the unspoken rules of socialization because I didn't I never really did socialize uh, successfully within my peer groups and I didn't have any support at home I mean they basically raided, raided, raised me like a potted plant here's some food here's some water of course we love you you live here don't you you know that's about you you're that's about all you're going to get out of my out of my folks so um it did it did create a a, a lot of a lot of gaps in my in my social understanding of, of things and my ability to to see things clearly. Right. So with the new information, I'm just wondering what the specific question is that I could uh, take a, take a swing at for you. Oh, well, sure. You know, I mean, um, maybe it's naivety. Uh, it's back to what we talked about a long time ago, but it's, um, what, what is it? it? I think it's just me or at least my programming, um, but what is it that that keeps me from uh, keeps me picking or choosing or being attracted to these things that I really like to do, and then having the ball pulled out from under me like Lucy and Charlie Brown? So why is there a repeat uh, of of childhood? Were you did you spend some time in your childhood trying to reach out to your parents, trying to hope that your parents would connect with you in a in a positive manner? You know, it was so chilled that it never occurred to me that that was something that anybody did. And even to this day, I, I have to self erase 
completely with uh, my surviving dad, and you know, it's it's pointless. So, the, the, the only people that I've been able to connect to is, of course, my girlfriend, who's brilliant. And, I love you, Stefan. <laughs> and uh, if if that was in and, fact and, your girlfriend and not a chillingly realistic hand puppet, um, high back. Uh, are you a chillingly realistic hand puppet? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure that I'm a human. Okay. Excellent. She's only about she's only about two feet tall, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, but. Uh, I'm an elf. So it's been very difficult to even find. I've been very fortunate to have uh, some uh, some friends in the past that I've been able to resonate with, but uh, and talk to uh, and connect with. But uh, one of them was recently passed away, so I just have one now. If that's what you're All right. So let's talk about your dad then, because most okay. of the people that you've talked about as having problems with since the big hair band days of the '80s uh, are <laughs> men. I would assume, right? Yes. Yes. So you have to self-erase around your dad. What does that mean? What happens? We, we don't have conversations. Uh, we there's there's he's religious and he's uh, he lives in his own uh, kind of uh, Jesus uh, um, Andy Griffith show uh, thought bubble. Um, he was just he grew up in a in a in a rural area and he was a king he was the king of the of the football team and he went into the air force and and everything. The only conversations we've ever been able to have are. House fishing, and uh, have you accepted Jesus Christ yet? Because you're going to go to hell and 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 pass pass the pass the uh, pass the uh, potato chips, you know. So we never get anywhere with anything. And if if it is raised, he'll just change the subject. So it's 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 been a, it was it, <clears throat> the last time I saw my father was just a couple of months ago, and I hadn't seen him in many years. And uh, we just sat down for lunch, and it was just like talking to strangers, and it was it was pointless. Right. Okay. And are there other people in your life uh, who were like that at all at the moment, or was it just basically the echoes of dead? Oh, I I don't have anybody else in my life that I have to self erase around now. I'm taking good care of that. Right. See, the the challenge is that, like Robert said, the challenge is that we're trying to deal with a very emotional topic here, but you're not emotional, right? Well, I'm getting kind of like a, a script. Like I have the feeling that you've said this stuff oh, a bunch of times before. Yeah, and I'm I, not criticizing. No, I'm not, just pointing I, out that, that if sure. we're going to try and deal with an emotional topic, if you're not emotionally open, we can't we we can't really get anywhere, right? Oh, sure, uh, sure. You know, um, I'm feeling a really strong sense of uh, of sadness and uh, right. and uh, heaviness and and futility. Are you right in your fifties at the moment? Oh yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. What happens if you got another 30 years on the planet and this doesn't change? Like I'm trying to get well, to the emotional driver that's underneath all of this. Like nothing changes the, the, for the, the next that You can't break out. You uh, can't break through. Uh, you can't achieve. You can't succeed. And the ring of assholes between you and paradise is just unbroken. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, so um, discouraging and crushing and uh... – and futile and pointless. It's, it, it's like you just say, I just, I feel like I'm just stuck in a social quickstand and it's, uh, it's just takes, takes my breath away. And, uh, I've been fighting like hell working on myself, um, and, uh, improving my relationships around me. But, but, uh, but right now I've just got a, I've just got a very small crew of people that I can even talk to. And, it, but thinking about that in the future is just, it's, uh, I just can't even breathe. 
Yeah, I mean, for the most part, change occurs within us when the alternative to change is not getting out of bed in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, I don't want to get out of bed and face my day, and I can't imagine wanting to get out of bed and face my day. That's usually the time when we change. I mean, without self-knowledge, without therapy, like in the absence of this yeah. knowledge, right? That's right. And I feel that I feel that way often. So, right, right. And I would. I'm gonna. You're a you're a big boy, so I'm gonna be blunt. But I think that's because of vanity. Okay, that's interesting. I don't mind. I don't mind at all. Go on. So. In your description, there was um, other people uh, who were the problem, and the impoverished map of the world is your parents, right? Right. But there's no you in that. There's no self-ownership as far as what you did, right? So you've probably heard about this this idea in self-knowledge called secondary gains, And secondary gains are the things that you get paid under the table, even while you claim you're losing money over the table, right? Sure. Yeah. Right. So secondary gains, when we say basically that the world is, is too irrational and people are too mean and the managers are all assholes and I was given an impoverished map of the world, these are... While I, I completely sympathize with the childhood, and if you were in your 20s, we'd be having a different kind of conversation. But in your 50s, sure. it's a bit more urgent, right? Yes, and, it is. And by the time you're in your 50s, you should have reclaimed self-ownership vis-a-vis your childhood, in my humble opinion. Sure. So, I think May I? Uh, that in a situation of conflict, we have a basic tendency, if you're, you're very intellectual, and I, I hope you don't mind if I share... The IQ that you mentioned, you said that when you were tested as a kid, you had an IQ of 156? Yeah, and, and they thought that I was lying. I was, they, they beat me for it. Now, do you see what you just did? I, I don't see what you see now. Well, I was just talking about the IQ, and you immediately started blaming other people. And obviously, if they said, did they beat you for your IQ test? Yes. Who did? Well, my parents, my parents punished me, punished me because they, they couldn't, they did not believe that it, that it could be possible that I had to be lying. And so they forced the school to test me again. And then what happened when you tested again and got similar scores? Well, well, then the, uh, the counselors at school were elated and, and uh, were astonished um, and were embarrassed that my parents uh, um, had me test again. And then they talked to them about putting me in a special school. And then my parents just got even more violent. Right. And that is, of course, tragic. So with a very high IQ, the question then becomes, why has success eluded you? Yes. And I, and I, know, I didn't know it's because I'm not, I don't understand something. No, see, this is the language that you use is because you're a very uh, smart fellow, Robert, the language uh, yeah. that you use is so subtle. Right. And, and does not contact at all the, the, the thesis of secondary gains, which I'm going to still work and try and get behind and push. Uh, you said I, because I, I don't understand something, right? Yes. Okay. So for how long, Robert, have you thought that you might not understand something? My entire life. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. 
So, <laughs> I moved to Japan, and I want to become a salesman in Japan. I'm in Japan for 40 years or 30 years, and I'm just failing as a salesman. And people say, well, why are you failing as a salesman? I say, well, I guess I, guess I, just, I, guess I just don't know Japanese. Well, what would you think if you heard me say that? Well, if you knew that you didn't know Japanese, you'd, you'd think you'd probably want to learn Japanese. Right. And so, yes. And so what I'm asking, what I'm asking. So what's the knowledge that's, sorry, what's the knowledge that's missing for you about people? Yes. And that's what I'm asking you because I don't know. You don't know. Got an IQ of 156 and you don't know. How long have you listened to the show for? Oh, you would be shocked at how many gigabytes I've, I've downloaded for all you guys. But I would not um, be shocked. I see the server reports. I, I'm not shocked, and I appreciate that. Okay, so yeah. there's, with an IQ of 156, there's something between you and knowing what you need to know. And I would argue that that thing is Absolutely. vanity. Right? Okay. When, we, when we feel we have great potential and other people... Uh, if we feel we have great potential, but we feel that other people are blocking us from our success, there's a secondary gain in that, right? Do you know what that is? Well, you don't have. Well, you're, you have an, You don't have a. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to take responsibility for it. Well, you can hang on to the idea of your specialness, and you can say that the reason it's never manifested itself in the world to my satisfaction is because other people won't let it. I didn't have the right contacts, you said, in the music. I didn't have the right, hanging the right cliques. I didn't, right? Right. Well, you know, if, if that's true, I'm probably completely unaware of it consciously. Um, it never occurred to me that, it, it's never occurred to me any time in my life that I was special. It just occurred to me that I was weird. Dude, uh, come on. You emailed us and you said, I was tested as a kid with an IQ of 156. Yes. That's huge IQ, right? Mike, if you can look up somewhere, that's like less than 1% of the population, probably a tenth of a percent of the population, right? Yes, that's correct. And so the first thing that you present to us is, I'm special. And oh, then you come on the call here and you say, well, it's never occurred to me that I might be special, right? Well, sure. But I don't, I don't, it's for, for some strange reason, there's a, there's a disconnect there because it, Robert, stop telling me there's a disconnect there. I know there's a disconnect there. That's what I'm trying to talk yes, about, right? Okay, thank you. Okay, you're yes. telling me stuff that you're telling me again and again and again. Thank All you. All right. If we externalize the reasons for our failure, we gain relief from ego diminishment. We gain relief from the puncturing of vanity. Yes. Right? You have achieved successes in your life that lots of people would envy. I mean, you were in a band, you're a singer, songwriter, musician, right? You did IT in the dot-com boom. You know, you're obviously not calling me from a cardboard box. And so you have achieved success. But there's a part of you that feels that the success you should have achieved, should have been much greater, right? That's really accurate, yeah. Okay, so you do deep down feel that you're special, and the medals that you deserve were not given to you, unjustly, right? 
I'm going to go ahead and, and, and just accept that as, and feel that because there's a part of me that's, that knows that's true. Which is a part, I, there's that part of me that just, just wants to say that's bullshit, but I'm just going to, I'm going to listen to both sides. Your IQ places you one in 10,581 people. You're in the top 99.9905490555%. Right? Right. Not to mention your musical talent, your singing voice, right? You are an exceptional human being. So what the fuck is my problem? Okay, but that's, that's what we're talking about, right? Right. That's what we're talking about. If and, you're a race car yeah. driver and you think you should win every race, but you don't, you can say, well, I don't get the right car. I didn't have the right gas. I didn't have the right pit crew. It wasn't the right time. I hadn't had any sleep because my neighbors were loud. I, well, whatever, right? But you know deep down that you are an exceptional human being. And you look around and say, well, where's the treasure that comes from my exceptionalness, right? Aha! Contacts. Mean people. Mad bosses in kilts. Those are the people who've kept me from my success yeah i'm completely full of shit in some area i can't i'm just that's why i call no 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 stop stop going extreme to extreme i really need you to interrupt your automatic responses because they're going to weary me and annoy the shit out of me after a while because you leap in with language to constantly derail the conversation by jumping to conclusions rather than experience what we're talking about all right and that's that's the curse of the intellectual and i'm not i don't it's not like i don't know anything about this right i'm not the uh tool in the shed either right but you don't want your you don't want your intellect to ride your emotions like the jolly green giant squishing a shetland pony right i mean so this automatic response that you have to derail things is is um annoying because we're not able to have a communication that's honest and open if you're you know if you're like Jedi guy with the sword, and you view me as an army of robots with lasers, right? Oh man, your 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 opinion is so valuable to you. I mean, I'm just, I'm really going to just focus on my breath and just really be yeah, present. Just, just breathe, else. breathe, and listen. And please understand, Robert, I might be entirely wrong. <laughs> just so you know, I'm just, I'm just telling you what I think. I, I don't, you know, I don't have a Vulcan mind sure. meld, or I don't have a brain scanner. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just telling you what I think, right? Sure. So, is your girlfriend willing to take the mic? Sure. It's funny. What? Would you like to talk to Stefan? Sure. Stefan, hey. How are you? I'm pretty good. All right. Um, Beautiful Bob is going to work on his breathing, and I just wanted to get a couple of thoughts from you, if that's all right. um, Yeah, about what? Uh, Just anything? The man of the hour. I don't know if you have you been listening at all, or is this all a mystery to you? Um, it's been difficult for me to hear what's going on. All right, um, so exactly. your Bob, your Bob yeah. is in the top ninety nine point nine nine oh five four nine oh five 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 percent of the population when it comes to intelligence, right? According to his childhood IQ test, which clocked him at one hundred and fifty six. Yes. As, I mean, as that is a I. seriously overclocked <laughs> CPU, right? And if let me ask you this. If he were able to utilize all of his 
actionable potential, all of the things that he's capable of, if he was able to put all four wheels on tarmac, what do you think he could achieve? Um, a lot. Jeez. I mean, I don't know. Um, um, I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of things. Um, enough for him, I, enough that he would be satisfied with things, at least to some degree. Well, yeah. I mean, he he would basically be able to achieve all of his goals. I think. And what do you think would happen to your relationship if he were to get all four spinning tires on the ground? Well, I suppose it'd become, um, what, um, I don't know, a lot easier. Just, I don't know, life would be easier for both of us. How so? At this point. How so? Um, Oh, how so? Um, um, well, we'd have more money. That's for sure. Uh, we could, we'd have probably have more space too. That would be really useful. Just, yeah, <laughs> things are kind of tight right now. So, you know. And how long have you guys been a couple? Uh, let's see, since like 2012. And what was it uh, that attracted you to Roberts in the first place? Um, his, Other than his giant D-cup frontal lobes, but go on. Yeah, no, his his <laughs> his mind. Yeah, it's it's quite quite a thing. His his personality, his bluntness, his honesty, um, his ability and willingness to um. To help me with my issues, you know, stuff like that. And if we put his uh, intelligence at 10 out of 10, which, you know, seems to be statistically the case, where would you put yours? Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm up in the same category. I'm, I'm within, like, my most recent test showed that I'm within, like, the less, the, the upper 2,000th percentile, at least, so... Yeah. Oh, of intelligence? Okay. Yeah. And do you feel the same sort of um, satisfaction or dissatisfaction with what you've been able to achieve with the gifts you've been provided? Uh, very, very much not satisfied with my own life because um, a whole bunch of other things, lots of trauma and stuff in my life and, and gaslighting and fun things like that, um, which listening to a lot – um, of your show has really helped me to process. So thanks for that, by the way. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, I've just been dealing with more and more crap throughout my life. I'm, I'm finally being able to, um, I'm finally at this point able to, uh, I'm in the process of completely disconnecting myself, uh, from horrible, abusive people. So, <laughs> that's what I've been doing my entire life. I've, I've, um, and even though I didn't even really get a grade school education, I, I did get a college degree. Um, so, I mean, I, I know I can do stuff, but like, you know, I, I want to go to a university and actually study to 
can be a neuroscientist. I'm actually interested in doing that because brains, you know, <laughs> I'm, brains. I'm very interested. Wait, in... I think I think that's supposed to be followed by. <laughs> Sorry, just... right? <laughs> Brain. But, and uh... um, are you in a similar age range to Bob uh, to Robert? Actually, no. I'm I'm quite a bit younger, which is you know. Which I guess you know is is handy for for me. I guess I mean I haven't I've had <laughs> I mean I've only had um, thirty three years of of horribleness uh, happening to me. But I, I think you know I'm at a turning point in my life. So uh, hopefully I'll you know I'll have the entire rest of my life ahead of me, just fighting on ahead. Basically. And do you guys um, self-medicate at all for, I mean, obviously, Bob's childhood was wretched and, and yours sounds rough and wretched, too. Do you guys self-medicate with um, drugs or alcohol at all? Um, well, I, um, he doesn't, but I, I do I do like the weed, but it, it helps it helps in other now, ways, it's a, too. It's a Friday night. Um <laughs> I don't mean to jump to conclusions, but is there a half-eaten bag of Doritos anywhere in the vicinity? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't eat. I don't eat junk food, so at least you know I, I have that down. Right. Uh. Okay. All right. Um, was there anything you wanted to ask me? Um. Gosh, I don't know. I can't. I can't. I can't really think of anything at the moment. But, okay. Um, if I can, if you can toss me back uh, Bob's uh, Maladapt frame, I would appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Thanks, Stefan. No, oh, no problem. All right. Questions or or rants? Which <laughs> this is your buffet <laughs> that you get. I'm to choose. going to just jump through the phone and accuse you of calling me names. No, um, I, I, I really, I really like uh, where you're coming from on secondary gain. This is going to give me some traction. I mean, there's. I, I uh, and I'm going to do a lot of. Uh, I'm going to really consider what you had to say. I don't believe it, but I'm getting so much resistance emotionally from it that's probably a good okay, sign. Okay, so tell me, tell me the emotional true. resistance. I, I feel like I'm getting. A, I feel like I'm I'm watching a dance, but being 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 distracted by the language ticker tape below. So what's what's oh, the emotional geez. response that you're getting to what I'm saying? Yeah, this, uh, my I'm I'm too good at language for my own good. Um, it's it's just like I'm thinking. Well, how dare he say that? I mean, he doesn't even realize that all these people have been mean to me, and and mm -hmm. he doesn't realize the depth of how horrible it's been. And then, then another part of me is like, yeah, but you know, maybe he's right. And uh, yes, because you want to use your suffering to dominate, right? To be in the right, to be correct, to be self righteous, to be. It was other people. I did my best to to take responsibility out of the equation for you, right? Sure, sure. And that's that's a natural tendency. We we almost all of us, everyone I've met has that tendency. I do, you do, yeah. and everyone has that tendency. When things go wrong, you know, we plan yeah. to let the, you know, we put up the shields, right? And it's like ah, the consequences, responsibility can't touch me. It was everybody else, right? Oh yeah. And that arises out of punishment. It doesn't. I don't think that's in human nature. It's just because we get punished as children. You know, it's like saying, hey, you you want to lick this live electrical wire i really don't right i don't want to have anything to do with it and if taking responsibility means getting punished 
Who dropped that plate? I cannot tell a lie. It was I. You know, out comes the paddle and down come the pants. So you are punished for self-ownership. You are punished for responsibility. You are punished for being the owner and agent of your own destiny. And so when self-ownership equals punishment, then we abandon the self. We abandon ego. We have to. It's not like it's tempting and I succumb to that temptation. It's no. I mean, it's aversive training. Self-ownership means punishment. But without self-ownership, we cannot enjoy what we have created. Because whenever we say other people are responsible for my lack of success, we cannot ever say that I am responsible for my success. Right. Did you see what, like, you can't have both sure. principles at my, play in the same personality for long. Well, my, my, the part of me that's not participating in that bullshit is just simply asking, how do I become crystal clear aware of, of what my part in all this is? Because I know, for a <laughs> no, f- Bob, I know that Bob, you're right. Bob, you don't have a part in all of this. Uh. You know, if, if I write a novel, I don't say, which part did I write? Right. You don't have a part in all this, this being your life, your success, your failures, your choices. You don't have a part in it. It's all you. Yeah. Now, this doesn't, and again, with all due respect, and I won't keep repeating this, but just understand, if you'd come from a different family, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I fully understand that. Sympathize. ACE of nine is brutal. You're raised in a fucking gulag. And I really, really sympathize with that. But that's decades ago now. And to face down the demon of self-abdication is the great task of anyone who aspires to heroism. To face down the great demon of self-abdication is the great task of anyone who aspires to heroism. Because when you say... I am responsible for my life. And I am responsible for everyone who is in my life. And I am responsible for every business relationship that I'm in. And I am responsible for where I live. And I am responsible for how much money I have or don't have. And I am responsible for who I'm throwing my balls and penis at. I am responsible for all of it. All of it. When you give yourself no out, I am responsible for all of it. That is all for well-rubbered, all-weather tires hitting the ground. I am responsible for all of it. You had shitty bosses. I guarantee you, Robert, that when you went into that interview and you talked to those people for the first time, their dysfunction was shining like some giant strobe light flashlight, (laughs) searchlight, lighthouse in your face. Absolutely. And you're like, well, let's roll the dice. Let's give it a shot. Maybe they'll change, right? Yes. I I had a job interview once where the guy was talking about how a bunch of Chinese guys shot through his window. 
I'm like, okay. So if I go forward with this, can I really blame him? <laughs> right up front. Yeah. Went, on a, went on a date once. I was set up, went on a date. <laughs> the woman was like, we had, we had a coffee, right? And the woman was like, okay, man, listen, great chat. You're great. Love to see you again. Do you mind getting the coffee? Like I'm broke because like the last guy I went out with like ran up $17,000 in credit card bills and I'm totally underwater trying to pay them off. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I should go forward with this or not. I was in a multi-year relationship where we fought on our second date. Now that's a dedication to not getting along. <laughs> that is just, man, I am really committed to not getting along with you. And I'm not going to let you not get along with anyone else, only with me. <laughs> I could go on and on. But, but when you oh my God. look at it, yeah. the bandmates that you chose, you knew in the music industry, let's say that you're right. That you needed particular contacts, you needed this, you needed that. Let's just say you're right. Let's say you're right. But you didn't do it, did you? No. You didn't do it. You made the choice to, to, to not do that. I know if I go and hang with this clique, I'll be successful. I'm not going to go and hang with this clique. My success was taken from me. No, it wasn't. It wasn't because when you tell me the reasons why you weren't successful... You're telling me that you chose to not be successful, right? You know, well, all I had to yeah. do to win that running contest was practice running. It was weird well, that no... I didn't run the con, I didn't win the contest. But you just told me why you didn't. All I had to yeah. do was is a confession that you didn't and chose not to. Did you see what I'm saying? Oh, I feel it. You get it, right? hundred oh, percent self ownership. I'm more than and that's it. freedom. That's the only goddamn freedom that this benighted planet is ever going to give you is 100% self-ownership. Don't cede a goddamn thing to excuses. I gave this apology to Christians the other night in the show, and I could feel that weasel part of me rising up, slithering up like a glass spider up my spine saying, no, no, start to make excuses. That will make you see more. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. 100% self-ownership. 100%. Well, you didn't know the information before. No, because I say to people, the information is easily available. If you're talking about a subject, you don't have the information and you don't openly say you don't, you're just theorizing, then you are responsible. So I'm responsible. I'm responsible. 100%. I do a good show. Great. I do a bad show. 100% responsible. Even in these call-in shows where there's the, <laughs> I don't know what the call is going to say, right? 100% yes. responsible. 100%. And if you give up any of that percentage the past wins. Did you have any control when you were a child? Fuck no. Fuck no. Did you have any authority? Could you make anything happen when you were a child? Worse than that. Yeah. You were a... A dooku in a <laughs> water spout, right? You were a, a, you know, you were a fart in a windstorm, right? You're just hanging on trying to get, right? So you know what 100% no self-ownership looks like, right? That's what history was for you as a child, right? Yeah. So the opposite of childhood, and, and you know, when you have a shitty childhood, Robert, you kind of have a weird negative. I mean, you, you're old enough to know what negatives are, right? Nobody knows. <laughs> 
what? I don't know. What is a negative when I shoot upside down with my cell phone? Um, but you know what a negative is? It's how you used to develop film back in the day. A friend of mine was a oh sure yeah was a photographer, right? So it's like, and and if you're a really good photographer, you can hold that negative up to the light and you can see the picture as it's going to turn out, right? Well, welcome to the incredible benefits of a shitty childhood. You have been trained in everything that is the opposite of happiness. You have been trained in everything that is the opposite of success. You are controlled, encapsulated, imprisoned in the anti-factory of perfection, right? Yes. It's like that old Seinfeld joke, you know, if every single one of my instincts is wrong, then if I do the opposite, it yes. will be great, <laughs> right? And that is genius because you know everything not to do. Did your parents ever take ownership for their own aggression or did they blame others? Was it your fault that they got mad? It was always my fault and they, they not only fault. didn't take responsibility. Always. And also so everyone else. So you see, you've got a perfect multi-decade example of what happens when you don't take self-ownership. When you blame your children of all things. <laughs> your children of all things. Of all the people in your life to blame, the children are like the least comprehensible. But of course, they're the only people that you have power over or you, your parents had power over, so it's natural. So you have, like, you're, you're like someone who's like, my parents smoked three packs a day and then they sneezed three lungs out of each orifice and died. It's like, well, you know what not to do now, don't you, right? So if you look at the example of your parents, that's almost no self-ownership. That's just being a pinball in your emotional reactions and blaming everyone else, right? So you know what that is, what that looks like. And how horrifying and ghastly and unfree it is. Because there's no choice in that. That is being dominated by reactive, defensive, bullshit, non-emotions. Passions. There's no freedom in that. Somebody who doesn't take ownership for his temper who continually justifies his temper by blaming anyone who provokes him, that person is never going to be free. Something's going to happen that pisses him off. He has no capacity to restrain his emotions because he has no self-ownership. There's no interception between stimulus and response. He's less than a robot. At least a robot, you can take the batteries out. You can turn the damn thing off, right? And so... You know what it looks like to not have self-ownership. You have that imprint. You have that example. So, and you will be amazed, Robert, when you listen back to this conversation at how little self-ownership you accepted in telling me about your life. I hope to be amazed. You will be amazed. Because now that I'm hopefully making this clear... That's called breaking with the past. Breaking with the past doesn't mean you abandon it. It means that you, you recognize that you can navigate perfectly by the map as long as you realize that it's completely upside down and inside out. Right? I mean, if you have a map that's upside down and you know it's upside down, it works fine. Right? And so if your childhood was horrifying and abysmal, which of course it was, then do the opposite. 
I grew up with people who took no ownership for their emotions and punished other people who ever tried to ascribe ownership to them at all. Even a tiny shred of ownership, a tiny shred of ownership would result in a massive amount of attack. And this is why your conversations with your dad devolve to dissociated abstractions and nice weather for this time of year. Because that's the only way that you can avoid any kind of conversations about self-ownership. If you look at your father, you see the living death of blaming others. The empty heart of pure projection. Where your locus of control, your sense of who runs your life is not in you. It's in God. It's in your boss. It's in the band. It's in the people who didn't give you the right promotion. It's in the people who didn't give you what you deserved. That was the problem. And that is vanity. Because vanity is saying that I am going to shield myself from the consequences of 100% self-ownership. I'm going to shield myself from that by putting ownership onto other people. And then I get an out to blame them when things don't work out. Are there shitty people in the world? Absolutely. But who's responsible for those shitty people in your life? You are. You are. You are. 100%. Because, and, and this is not to say if you had a bad childhood, of, of course, absolutely. But you had a bad childhood because people didn't exercise self-ownership, but they blamed you. You can't punish someone for something that you have done. And so you have to think that your child has done something bad in order to punish the child. But that's taking no ownership for your anger and your desire to punish. Right? So right. if you grow up, I'm sorry, that sounds wrong. I don't mean grow up, like in, in, in the past. Like if you grow up as a child, if you grow up, Robert, seeing what happens when people don't exercise self-ownership, you should run screaming to the other extreme, which is the only sensible reality, that you do own 100% of your choices. And you even own your choice to not own your choices. You, you, you're smart. Right. You get it, right? You, you understand sure. that. Something. You yeah. own yeah. your decision to not be a successful musician who stops at nothing to get what he wants. When I was younger, I wrote novels. I wrote poems. I wrote plays. I was philosopher. Give me a break. <laughs> who wants that gig? <laughs> right. And I wrote great stuff. I, my novels are great. And I could not get any purchase in that industry. I could not get any purchase in that industry. After I wrote, um, I was in a writing class, um, and I got the most amazing review of the novel that I produced in that writing class. I had a first writing teacher who thought my writing was just terrible, and then I had another teacher who was more helpful. And I had an agent, I had people who wanted like this, and it was literally a guy with a PhD in literature said, the novel I've written this is what we've been waiting for, he said. This is the great Canadian novel. This is the one we've been waiting for to put Canada on the literary map. So I, got, I went to work as a software executive. And every time the phone rang, I was like, I guess I'm going to quit. <laughs> right? 
I mean, it's a great Canadian novel. I guess I'm quitting right now. Phone would ring. Uh, I'm sorry, we have a problem with the bill from last night. Can you come out and have a look? Oh, okay, but then I'm quitting. <laughs> when the next call comes through from the agent who wants to give me X amount of dollars for the great Canadian novel. And I tried with other agents and nothing happened. And I wrote another novel and nothing happened. And I tried another. <laughs> and I tried again. And then a, a friend of a friend was an agent and she, and she's like, oh, this is no good, right? Or whatever, right? I mean, just you tried and tried and tried. And right. I was 100% responsible for all of that, right? And the great lack of responsibility, there's two poles to the lack of responsibility. The first is projection, where all negative things that happen to you are caused by other people, which gets you off the hook. And also, unfortunately, you see, that's what they, that's what they want you to think. Because that allows them to give you the Simon the Boxer repetition compulsion. That's a reference to a section of the free book, Real-Time Relationships, at freedomainradio.com slash free. Bad people in your life, in a weird way, don't want you to take self-ownership. Because when you take self-ownership, you say, well, if there are bad people in my life, I'm completely responsible for that. So what am I going to do about it, right? My relationships with dysfunctional people ended when I accepted 100% responsibility. 100% responsibility. This person, this man, this woman, this whoever, they're in my life. I am 100% responsible for that person being in my life. I pick up the phone. I go over. I have them come over. We talk. We email. I am 100% responsible. That's the freedom to make choices. So on the one pole, there is projection where you say uh, other people are the causes of my emotions. And on the other pole, which is, I think, probably closer to where you have been, on the other pole is irrational and anti-empirical optimism, right? The next boss, yes. the next person, yes. the next yes. agent, yes. the yes. next gig, the next career, the next friend, the next, that next one, that's going to break the cycle. It's the irrational optimism. That bleeds away our capacity for clear-eyed self-ownership. Looking at the patterns of the world, looking at the reality of life, looking at everything we've absorbed, everything we know, everything we've learned, and saying, what are the odds, empirically, <laughs> of the next person, of the next gig, of the next job? Unless something I do changes, what are the odds of something outside me changing if I don't change? The irrational optimism when you let go of that, that's when you face despair. That's when you give up the illusions that somehow some positive updraft and momentum of a better world is going to get you to where you want to be, right? To where you feel you deserve to be. When I finally got, oh God, it was just so long and so hard. But when I finally got that having optimism around dysfunctional people in my life was an abdication of self-ownership. Cross your fingers. <laughs> it's oh, not say that again. a philosophy, right? Especially when... Say that again. Yeah, say that again. I've got to hear that. With the cross your fingers or the before part? Just before, when you finally got. When I finally got that having irrational optimism around the dysfunctional people in my life was... 
an abdication of self-ownership. Because what it means, irrational optimism is to say that things will get better so I don't really have to make any changes. And anything which diminishes your capacity to make changes is an abdication of self-ownership. Everything which lulls you into a false sense of security, everything which dazes and disorients you and spins you around and says, oh, it's going to get better. No, it's, it's going to be fine. This irrational optimism. When I finally got <laughs> that no one was going to come along and publish my books, wasn't going to happen. Wasn't going to happen. And it only, like I wrote my first novel when I was 11. <laughs> By the time I was in my 30s, <laughs> right, with only 30 years, <laughs> early 40s, whenever the hell it was, I'm like, it's that old Nathaniel Brandon line, right? No one is coming to save you. No one is coming to save you. You have to do it yourself. And people said to Nathaniel Brandon, well, you came. And he said, yes, but I came to tell you that no one is coming. Right? Because the, the reality is, oh, this sounds so cynical, but it's not. I'm telling you, it's not. The reality is nobody gives a shit about your dreams and goals. They don't give a shit about your dreams and goals because they're too busy trying to manipulate other people into giving them what they want. Right. I mean, you like this show. I think you like me, but you don't wake up every morning and saying, what does Stephanie do this morning? I hope he's doing well. I hope he's having a fun day. Maybe I can find some way to make his day even better, right? That's not bad. Well, it's I just reality. I spent, I, I spent about 10 seconds a day on that. <laughs> well, I think that's 10 seconds more than most. Right, so so nobody was nobody was coming. Now, I mean, in hindsight, yes, I get it all. And the, the writing is great. The characters are great. The plot is, plots are good. Plots are my strong point. But it's too radical. It's too radical for people. And it wasn't even that it was capitalistic or anything like that. It was just, it was too radical for, for people. And if you want to know why, you can pick up these uh, novels there. I think for a donation, yeah, in the gold section of the donator section, you get the God of Atheist audiobook for free and all that. But anyway, so it wasn't, wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Because Ilya Kazan didn't care about whether Marlon Brando was happy. He cared that Marlon Brando would make his film great, right, as a streetcar named Desire. And that, it's, I mean, you can say, well, it's selfish. And, and there are people who, you know, are so, sort of outside this paradigm, but they're very rare. But recognizing that people weren't like, well, I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to publish the great Canadian novel no matter how radical, no matter how crazy, no matter whatever. It's not going to happen. Not, I mean, there are a few, few, few tiny people like the, the guy who got the fountain. He got on the same day, he got the fountainhead and Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, of which two more diametrically opposed works of literature could scarcely be imagined. And he was like, uh, his, his publishing house was like, no, we're not publishing the fountainhead. Who cares about architects? And he's like, well, I do. And if you don't publish it, I'm quitting. Well, he took a stand. He took a stand. That's incredibly rare. I mean, if you wait for that, it's like my retirement plan is I'm going to not even buy a lottery ticket. I'm going to find one and it's going to win. <laughs> I mean, is it possible? Yes, it is. But that's like saying, well, I'm not going to get my cancer treated because spontaneous remission plus prayer. Like, nope, I don't think that's a wise plan. 
So this is what I'm sort of trying to say, that if you have this optimism, right, bad people around you want you to be optimistic about them so they don't have to get better. Optimism about dysfunctional people is enablement. It's subsidizing their shittiness with your smiles. Okay, for the last 20 years, it's been pretty shitty being around this person, but let's have lunch. So, wow. what I'm talking about is you are 100% responsible for your life. And you are 100% responsible for all, 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 all of the self-abdications. If the king gets off the throne, the throne is empty, but the king chose to leave. And the great news about that is you can choose to resume your seat in the self. Nobody was responsible for me getting what I consider important out into the world. Nobody was responsible but me. And we we're brought and raised to be so dependent. I'm going to pray to God to get me what I want. I'm going to write to my politician to get what I want. I'm going to wait for an opportunity to land in my doorstep. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to hope. I'm going to all, oh, right? All of that. Right. And that's just a paralysis. It's a paralysis. And you, I think, are at the end of the road of that paralysis, which is why you're calling in today. You want to own yourself. You want to own everything about your life. Because otherwise, you've been given this great gift. You kept it at a mean distance. And when you die, it goes. Right. All right. Revolutions. Uh, sorry, just minor a pitch revolutions which is my novel about the russian revolution as a pdf the god of atheists as a pdf and audiobook sign up for 20 bucks a month and almost as a pdf in the first 22 chapters as an audiobook is available in the silver section which is like 10 bucks a month at freedomainradio.com slash donate so yeah you can get them uh, real cheap and uh, they're great great books um sorry uh, robert go ahead that was wonderful, and and uh, <clears throat> you uh, made me feel made me feel. I love that phrase. Very uncomfortable. No, I did. You didn't. But uh, I really liked how you came across because it never occurred to me. Well, <clears throat> there it goes again. <clears throat> that it could be vanity, and uh, but the way you framed the vanity was not what I thought it would be. <clears throat> and I really like. Oh yeah, irrational optimism sure is irrational optimism is a wild species of vanity. It's it's the idea that hope can change personalities. I mean, it's grandiosity in the extreme. If I think really well of people, if I act really well around them, I'll change who they are. Because I am Thor, master of dimension. I can change personalities with my brain, with my good behavior. I can carve new channels in neural pathways. Neuroplasticity is my domain. Domain, domain. Right? I mean, this is not how it works, right? It's like being, right. if I work out, you'll get muscles. <laughs> Like, that's insane, right? We get that, but it's kind of grandiosity and vanity to it. Wow. I really like that it had never occurred to me. And bad people love to provoke that grandiosity in us, so they don't have to change. I'm going to give you hope, so I don't have to change. <laughs> I'm going to paralyze you with optimism, so I don't have to grow up. Well, thank you, Steph. Thanks so and much. And everyone helps with that too, right? Sorry to interrupt. Right. Everyone helps you. 
with that. Because they're like, he means well. <laughs> he's doing the best he can with what he's got. Uh. Everybody tries to stimulate this paralytic hope in you. Next time, it'll be better. You know, just just keep loving him. He'll learn, right? Everybody just uh. like to provoke this hope in you. Don't worry. The bus is coming. <laughs> There's no need to walk. It's coming. It'll be right here. Don't worry. It's a little late. Why would you want to walk? And then after a while, you've invested so much goddamn time in waiting for the bus, you can't even stand the idea of walking anymore. Then you have the gambler's fallacy. You know, I've invested this much in my shoes. Fallacy at sunk costs. Absolutely. And, and all, all dysfunctional people have to do is get you to invest a certain amount, and then you step over the fulcrum and you're stuck unless you really get jolted by something, right? And intelligence. Intelligence is, is, the, is the great temptation because you are smarter than your average bear. You're smarter than more than 10,000 of the random people around you. And there is this idea that, you know, hey, I'm smart. That's like having giant tits. People should just buy me drinks. <laughs> right? It's just the way, the way we think, right? I'm smart. So, I don't know. Where's my gold? Yeah, well, that's not valuable Where's to Where's the anybody, conveyor belt of great shit that should be falling into my frontal lobes? Hey, brains, sure, but brains, need a giant, <laughs> a giant, a uh, well-mechanoed wonder bra to hold these frontal lobes up. Come on. I'm shaking them here. Shaking them out loose. Shaking them loose. <laughs> Come on, baby. Well, Give me the gold. Pay for the brains. Pay for the brains. Hello. Echo. 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 Does it come? It really doesn't. Right? No, well, because it's not valuable. That's a lot of resentment, eggs. right? Because brains ain't eggs, baby. <laughs> but yeah, it's not valuable to anybody unless you find a way of making it valuable to somebody else. It doesn't mean anything, <laughs> you know. Oh, there's some optimism for you. <laughs> How well do people... Uh, say, Robert, <laughs> how well do people react to your intelligence? Well, long as I, know I as long as I as long as I as long as I keep it hidden, they like me. No, 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 no. You tape down the, the group, you don't get the drink. It depends. No, it depends on the person. You know, I mean, uh, it it depends on on a lot of things. But I, I get. I, let's put it this way: my girlfriend says, "Notice that either people really like me or they really hate me." Mm. So, well, if you think intelligence is vanity, try mediocrity. <laughs> Now that's vanity, right? And we know this is the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The people, people who are average think they're way better than what they are, right? And it's just astounding the number of comments just that this show receives, the number of comments that this show receives that are unbelievably retarded and put forward oh, with astounding self-confidence. Astounding yeah. self-confidence. Like, like I've studied yeah. this for 30 years or more. Oh my God, it's been like, yes, this year I will have studied philosophy for 33 years, off and on, and mostly on. And people like confidently stride up and just give me the most unbelievably stupid shit with the most astounding confidence. Well, it is true that you've been studying this field for 33 years but I just watched a video that was seven minutes long, and let me give you the answer. <laughs> I like, watch. I read your yeah. 
I read okay. your I read your uh, wow. I read your YouTube comments. Well, if that has broken your optimism, <laughs> there's nothing like YouTube comments to take a baseball bat to the crystal visors of our optimism. <laughs> right, and and uh, it really is um, uh, it is amazing, and and that's because from from the inside of everyone's head, they're great and special, and. Um, when you actually go up against someone who's competent and confident, it's really it, it it's tough. I look, I recognize all of that. Like when I have someone like James Flynn on, I mean, what the hell am I gonna say to this guy about the study of intelligence? Because I'm good at a few things, and what that helps me to understand is I'm really bad at everything else. Really bad at everything else. And what am I am I gonna spend a couple of days reading some books? Uh, and 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 then somehow have a conversation of equals with the guy who's been a professor since uh, you know Methuselah was in diapers. No, it's not going to happen. I, it's not going. I mean, I'm just going to like, hey, you know, talk to my audience, you smart guy, because you know, I love la, 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 la. And um, but but in order to to respect other people's competence, you have to first be competent at something yourself. And that is just the reality of the world that we live in. That there aren't enough people who are good at anything, to recognize and allow people to know when someone's good at something. And uh, this is particularly true, I mean, in the realm of philosophy and economics and politics, just all over the place, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, so when, when you, if you bring genuine competence to a particular area of endeavor, then um, particularly when it's one that's actionable by individuals, Right. I mean, it's very humiliating for people to realize that they've been living the wrong way ethically for their whole lives. And that's very tough. It's different than, I don't know, um, the degree to which the Flynn effect is raising their intelligence or whether it's peaked. And it's all interesting stuff and it's important to know and, and all that. But it doesn't really change much about individuals and how they live and who they're surrounded by and what they do with their lives and what legacy they're going to leave behind and what is their imprint on the moral character of the species. But when you get to something like the non-aggression principle or UPB or really down in the guts, down in the heart, down in the spine of the spine of the world, man, I mean, you might as well be dousing people in water and plugging their toes into a 240 volt socket. I mean, they're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what do you mean there's facts in the realm of ethics? What do you mean I can't just go with momentum and old books? Come on. And so your intelligence is a challenge to people which is why you have this shield called optimism, right? Because if you're optimistic about people, then you don't end up threatening their sense of identity by reminding them that there's no such thing as a country, right? The gods don't exist. (laughs) Oh, I really have a good time with that one. So, yeah, if you let your intelligence blaze forward, uh, you will realize very quickly that human beings have an incredibly ambivalent relationship with intelligence. Everybody wants the fruits of the smart people, but nobody wants the ego challenges of being around real intelligence, or very few people do. So, yeah, I I think that uh, vanity would be my diagnosis, for want of a better word, but... um, I would definitely look at the degree to which you are not accepting the facts of reality. And the only reason we reject the facts of reality and the empirical evidence of our experiences is because of vanity. 
Wow. Well, thanks, Steph. That was really interesting, and I really am going to take it to heart what you had to say. And uh, I can really feel the uh, Legos moving around inside of my inside of my skull. Well, great. I really appreciate that, and uh, do let us know. Uh, do let us know how it goes. Thanks, mate. And I'll see you online. All right. Take care, man. All right. Thank you, Robert. Well, up next is Tracy. Tracy wrote in and said, given the truth about the Dalai Lama show, is it just the one so-called Buddhist, the Dalai Lama, or other specific Buddhists that Stefan finds fault with? Or is it Buddhism in general? If he has objections to Buddhism generally, restricting the discussion to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which he mentioned in the podcast and is the heart of Buddhism, what specifically does he object to? Hello, Tracy. Hello, Stefan. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. Uh, I just wanted to mention that no one uh, told me that it was the old abused gifted guy show tonight. So, <laughs> Oh, dear. Tell me more. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. So uh, we can answer the question then. All right. Um, let's assume that you are okay with that and we're not going to come back to it. Uh, your question is, do I have any specific objections or what are my specific objections to Buddhism? Uh, well, are there objections to Buddhism or is it just the Dalai Lama that you're, you know, basically uh, upset with or criticizing? You have a uh, pretty manipulative use of language, if you don't mind me saying so. I could be wrong. Okay, but, um, uh, I'm willing to hear that. Go ahead. Yeah, just because you're sort of personalizing my objections. You know, okay. you have a problem with, or you have a criticism of, or is it just this individual you basically don't like and all that. But this is a show about philosophy, right? So it's not a question of what I like or don't like. The, the question is, are the... Uh, metaphysical, epistemological, ethical propositions put forward in a rational, testable, empirical manner. Okay, fair enough. Can I answer my? Can I change my question a little bit then? Yeah. So it, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed to me that the um, the show about the Dalai Lama was pointing out failures in his uh, morality. Would would that be a, a fair statement? Well, it was um, a show on, on many layers. Okay. Um, I, I certainly did talk about the, the challenges of uh, Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism is not a philosophy. A, a philosophy isn't just things that work for you in your life or larger principles that you can subjugate yourself to or self-mastery or even self-knowledge. These are not philosophical principles. Um, you know, a beaver can build a dam that stands. That doesn't make the beaver an engineer or a scientist. Right. So uh, it's not, you know, structures that things live in. <laughs> it's a bird's nest. It doesn't mean that you're an architect. And so the fact that there are principles, uh, the fact that there are arguments that are put forward and so on, has, there's nothing to do with philosophy. So my major criticism is that people think that it's a philosophy, but it's not. I actually agree with you on that point. It is uh, a practice or it is a methodology. No, it's not a methodology. It's mm. a series of, of, of irrational assertions. Okay, which one with, is it? With positive-sounding adjectives that are put forward to make people feel uh, warm and cozy and subjugate themselves to a priestly class that fastens itself like a vampire bat on the jugular of the hardworking people of uh, Tibet and other places. Well, 
So it's not it's not a methodology. Well, a I, methodology is something that is falsifiable and reproducible and like scientific method. That's a methodology. But I don't see how making assertions like, for instance, that um, there's a, a, an essence of life that survives birth and is reincarnated. I mean, right, that is an astounding assertion to make. And uh, there's no proof for it whatsoever and no evidence for it whatsoever. And it's made with the utmost confidence. And that's why it is not in the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path which is the heart of Buddhism. And I think that you could pretty much, you know, ignore the whole reincarnation thing uh, because it's not a present moment sort of thing you can do anything about. It's just speculative uh, and not really very useful in order to, um, you know, try to make your mind happier. Okay. So let's do the Four Noble Truths. Okay. Okay. The Truth of Suffering. Mm-hmm. So is is that the argument that um, everything which is alive experiences suffering? Well, I think it's a little. Hmm, let me let me put my take on this. Uh, suffering is wait wait something... no no see already we're not in the realm of philosophy anymore. Your take on it? What does that mean? Well, I wouldn't describe it the way you did. I would say that suffering is something that you can see directly in your own mind if it exists at this moment. So it's okay. not something you have to speculate about. So like the soul, for example, would be something that you would need to speculate about. But at this very moment, we can look in our own minds and we can determine if there is suffering and how much there is or what is the cause of it as well. Okay, so I'm not sure how the fact that human beings suffer is a noble truth. I mean, I think it's factual, sure. I stub my toe, I'm suffering. I mean, I'm anxious, uh, I'm suffering, and so on, right? Okay, but you would agree then that that first noble truth is certainly a truth. Yes, it is a true. It is it is a true statement to say that human beings uh, can suffer and do suffer. Yes. Well, probably animals, and but we can also look at it directly. It's a directly observable empirical fact, as opposed to a soul, for example, which is not. Okay. Or, yeah. So right. But, it, it, it's really an observation because it, it's a principle. It's like saying human beings are mammals, and that's the essence of my philosophy. It's like, well, it may be true, but it's not a principle. It's not a universalization thing, right? Human beings don't all suffer all the time, and certainly don't all suffer all the time for the same reasons, right? Yes, they do. That's the second noble truth. Everyone suffers because of craving and clinging. That is the cause of suffering. All right, so if I, if I stub my toe, I'm suffering. And I don't mean to trivialize it. I'm just trying to no, no, sort of understand go. the bounds of the theory. So if I stub my toe, I'm suffering. Is it not the damage to my toe and my nerve endings that are causing my suffering? Well, that's, that's excellent. I'm actually glad you went to that one because that's, that's one of the harder questions to answer in terms of uh, this particular uh, you know, uh, concept because pain, let me, let me just sort of describe it this way. A significant component of pain, I think you could probably say 80% of pain is emotional. The physical sensation that we experience is not really all that difficult. The problem is that there's actually a fear reaction because there's a fear of damage to the body. And it's very deep. It's a very, very deep reaction. And it's based on fear. It's a clinging to 
uh, not wanting to lose functionality in the body. Okay, but I mean, if somebody has a migraine, we don't imagine that the migraine is going to cause the head to explode, but it is extraordinary suffering, right? Well, a migraine, I would say, is also a signal from your body that's saying that there's something wrong in the body. And then the mind reacts by, you know, being upset about that because we don't want to lose, you know, we think there's something wrong with our brain or our head or whatever. I mean, it's it's usually vascular, I would I think, in terms of migraines. I'm not not a doctor, but but there's something that the body is signaling that is wrong, that is a potential. All right. Loss so how about uh, how about arthritis? I, I think that's the same thing. So there's a, a Wait, signal sorry, from the body. That, are you saying that arthritis is uh, psych- psychological in origin? It's, it's somatic? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, it's difficult to explain. Uh, the, you get a pain signal, right? So you get a pain signal in your brain from either arthritis or you get it from, you know, vascular problems, which I think are the, pro- the cause of migraines. Or if you stub your toe because there's, you know, you know, some pain receptor in your toe that's saying something has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. All of those things are the same in that regard. And the reason that you have a reaction to that is because you don't want to experience the loss of damage, right? So you're clinging- No, 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 no. No, the reason that you experience that is because the, the, the pain centers in your brain are activated by the nervous system. Because uh, even even animals that we would not imagine have any kind of consciousness uh, avoid that which is unpleasant and pursue that which is pleasant, right? Sure. Uh, maybe I could describe something a little... I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm getting this across well. No, no, no. I don't think that's the problem. <laughs> I okay. don't think that's the problem. Because we're having a debate here, right? Sure. And if when I put something back which is a counter to your point, saying that you're not explaining it well is kind of annoying and a little condescending, in fact. I assume that you're trying to explain it the best way that you can, which either means that you're not good at explaining it or I'm not very smart, right? I don't mean to be confrontational. I'm just sort of pointing it out that I find it annoying, and this happens more with Buddhists than with other people. I find it annoying when a Buddhist puts forward an argument, I put forward a counter-argument, and then they say, well, it's tough to explain, and I'm maybe not explaining it very well. It's like, Shouldn't you know how to do this if you're a Buddhist, how to explain these things? And just because I'm putting something back that's a counter-argument, I don't think you get to fog me with, well, it's hard to understand, right? Uh, okay, fair enough. So my, my um, I was, when I was saying that I wasn't explaining it well, I was putting the onus on me that I wasn't doing a very good job of explaining it. No, but, but if you don't know how to explain it well, then you need to go and practice about how to explain it well, and we'll have the conversation another time. Uh, well, I guess I, I can't argue with that. Yeah, and listen, I'm I'm very happy to have the conversation, but you know, if if someone comes up with um, like if I'm arguing UPB, and someone comes up with an objection, and it happens a lot, right? If someone comes up with an objection to UPB or something, if I just say, well, I guess I'm not explaining it that well, or it's really hard to understand or whatever, but I don't actually deal with their objection, you understand that would be kind of evasive, right? Uh, did I not deal with your objection? No. You, 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 you've said a couple of times now, well, it's hard to explain, and I maybe not be doing a great job of explaining it. In other words, somehow my objection can be overcome with a different explanation. But that's not actually listening to my objection and processing it, right? Like if you say, well, the cause of suffering is your thoughts in the mind, and I say, well, in terms of that, that's certainly true sometimes, and 
cognitive behavioral therapy would be very much along those lines, if I understand it correctly, that it is irrational, negative, destructive thoughts that will pr produce things like anxiety and, and stress and, and irrational anger and so on. So there certainly is uh, reality to the argument that uh, suffering uh, within the mind can be caused by our perspectives within the mind. But that's not the case for all suffering. All right. I'm actually going to say that it is. And the reason I'm going to say that I wasn't actually going to bring this up, it is possible to turn off pain and I can do that. So it is possible to literally not experience pain. So and the entire, so when I went in for neck surgery, the anesthesia was kind of like a scam, right? I wouldn't say it's a scam. It's a difficult ability to develop. It takes a lot of practice. It's very difficult to do. But so you pain, could have, let's say, so I'm just trying to understand it. So you, you see, you, your argument is that, or your, your claim is that you could have something like unanesthetized adult circumcision, and there would be no elevation in your heart rate, heart rate, no release of of adrenaline or cortisol or anything like that. It would be as if you were having a nap. Well. There are different degrees of ability to do this. I have had my teeth drilled without Novocaine. Um, I would say that there was probably, uh, I don't know, I wasn't hooked up to any machinery. There was probably an elevated response to that. And that's because, you know, basically pain is, um, you know, it's a very attention-grabbing thing. And, it, you know, the more intense the pain is, the more it grabs your attention. So I, I think can, that's the point. That's the point of pain is to I, tell you to do something different than what you're doing. If your hands in the fire, your point of pain is to take it out. Sure, I, I agree with that. But in in the sense when you're undergoing, um, you know, some like I'm getting my teeth drilled, I'm voluntarily doing that because uh, you know I I see some other gain from that. So I don't necessarily want to experience the pain, but I don't want to not be in the situation that's causing the pain. Okay, so is your argument then that all suffering is a choice? Um, I wouldn't say it's a choice completely because it requires, like I said, it requires a certain amount of practice and training. It's like it's not a choice to be able to to be able to run a marathon right now, right? I would have to train in order to be able to do that. So I can't choose right now to run a marathon. I can choose to ignore certain levels of pain. So, you know, I can sit for two or three hours without pain, and that's normally excruciating. And, you know, the way that, I mean, I can go into the mechanism by which I do that, but the, the point is, is that I can move my perception to something other than the pain, stick it on something that, keep my perception on something that is, other than the pain, it's usually a meditation object. But isn't, and, uh, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you. So, oh, and, and the reason I have to interrupt you is that, uh, look, I mean, I, I just don't have any verification for what you're saying. If there That's are fine. scientific studies, if there are scientific studies that show that uh, people who study uh, Buddhism can be hooked up to machines uh, and, uh, you know, if they're getting dental work done or something like that and they're drilling right through the nerve, and they show no elevated pain responses, I, I mean, please send them in. I would be fascinated to, to read that sort of stuff. But it's confusing to me because the Dalai Lama was trained by being whipped. Yeah, you know, 
I think that um, uh, what I say this whipping certainly is not a part of the four noble truths and the eightfold path, right? <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's something wrong. So they they would be anti-Buddhists then. It seems that way to me. You know, I know that would cause a lot of consternation, but it seems to me, you know, if you say you're a weightlifter and you don't lift weights, you're not a weightlifter. Right? Right. So right. if you're not following the Buddhist path, you're... I'm sorry. <laughs> no? Right. Okay, well, listen, because because we're kind of stuck at the beginning here, and I certainly would be fascinated if there was a way of being able to control all pain using only... Um, uh, mental discipline. I, I, I would be honestly fascinated to to read about that. So let's, you know, put a bookmark on the conversation. If you can send in the um, studies that show this kind of stuff, uh, but because this is an empirical claim that's being made, it's not a philosophical claim, so it cannot be evaluated rationally. But um, if uh, if you could send in the studies to us, uh, I would love to talk more about it and and to learn more about how this has uh, occurred because of course i mean if people are making extraordinary claims they should be very keen to submit themselves to the evidence and of course i think i would imagine that we wouldn't want to be inflicting suffering on people needlessly to test their pain responses but there are situations wherein uh, people as you say they're going to go get their teeth drilled they and if there is a way uh, and the people who make these claims of course would want to uh, prove it as as clearly and as openly and as scientifically as possible so if you could send those uh, studies in, I would be beyond fascinated to uh, uh, to read about them. And maybe we could pick this up after the empirical challenges of your claims are dealt with. Uh, okay, so I, I'm going to put forward the, like, what evidence would count. I mean, so the problem that I see with this is that it is possible that the body could have a physical response to pain. In other words, there'd be elevated cortisol levels or whatever would be measurable and that doesn't necessarily mean that it would be experienced. Well, you know, but at some point, you, you have to have some proof for something, right? And if people can say anything they want, right? I mean, if, if, the, if, the, physi if the physiological response to pain is um, identical to a Buddhist and a non-Buddhist, and if the pain centers are lighting up and this and that and the other, yeah, people can say whatever they want. But... Um, uh, if there's no physiological change, like if, if I say, oh, mental discipline can have you eat nothing but candy and you'll never get any cavities, and then I get what can show up in the x-rays is lots of cavities, and I can say, well, they aren't cavities to me, well, <laughs> it doesn't really, like my perception then becomes a little bit dubious. And I certainly wouldn't want to hang an entire empirical foundation to the first or the second, I guess, of the noble truths of Buddhism on someone's claim rather than something that could be empirically proven. Uh, but, of course, if they could not have... And, and look, I'm not saying that, that mental attitudes have nothing to do with physical pain. I mean, I get that there's things that people can do to uh, manage pain that is not directly uh, medication-based, but um, it would be a pretty key thing to, to establish uh, because that is, you know, the idea that all pain is, uh, uh, in a sense, a choice, uh, is um, uh, it's a it's a wild claim to to hear and wild claims to not bad right it could be perfectly fine to us I mean it's not like this is the only wild claim this show has ever entertained or even made but um, you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and subjective reporting in defiance of physiological responses would be pretty dubious to me but if you could <clears throat> look those up and and pass those along I'd I'd be thrilled to look into it more but I don't think we can go much further if the 
foundation of the philosophy is empirical, uh, and we don't have any empirical evidence on hand to to establish that, then we can't really go much further until that's dealt with. Well, I, I think that the the only proof that can come from that is actually the proof that comes from doing it. So unfortunately, these things are basically like, let's provide an analogy. So if, I, if I'm passing you going, uh, walking on a road, we're going in opposite directions, and I say to you that there is a barn two miles down the road, I can't prove that to you. You're going to have to go down there and look and see, right? So that so what I'm saying no, no, is but, but what we're talking about here is subject to empirical verification. Yes, and if you were to sit and meditate and do these things, you could yourself find this out. Well, no. These, no, 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 no. Come on, come on. I think come so. On. You, 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 don't, you don't say to people, oh, yeah, no, it's really complex. It's really tough to do. You've got to spend years of study, and then you'll understand. That's, that's not how things work when, when you're facing a skeptic. Believe and act as if it's true, and you'll know. Right. I mean, that's not how things work. If, if you're making a claim that uh, certain people have the capacity to not experience physical pain, no matter what the duress or all pain is a choice, saying, well, I'm not going to test any of that. But if you study in this monastery for five years, you'll get it. People were like, oh, who's got time? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, I, 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 everybody's claim could be made about everything. You know, maybe maybe if you cut your balls off, you do go and join that comet. I mean, but I'm going to keep my fellows close to my pockets. Right. Well, I so mean, everybody could make any kind of claim that they want. And then if you say, I'm skeptical about it, they say, well, if you spend five years studying, you know, 12 hours a day, then you'll learn it. It's like, no, that's not, not how these things work, right? Yeah, but Stefan, you picked the very hardest thing. You know, I mean, that's a very hard thing to do, but you can still see some benefits as you were wait, saying. Wait, wait, wait. I'm yes. sorry to interrupt you again. What do you mean I picked the very hardest thing? Well, physical pain is very hard that is a very difficult thing to be able to um, <laughs> It says here, uh, ignore. We, we, yes. we started going through the Four Noble Truths, right? Yes. And all, all people suffer, and the cause of suffering is in the mind. Yes, I, I, didn't, so I, didn't, I didn't go to the index and start at the back. This is, this is the, the, the two basic things. Uh, how and, am I picking these things? No, no, no. I mean, picking pain. So there's, there's simpler forms. There's easier forms of suffering than physical pain. So there's easier, easier. Well, I mean, as you were mentioning, you know, there are things in your mind that you can change in order to reduce your suffering that are not the physical pain. Those are easier things to deal with than physical. Physical pain takes a lot of training to do something about. Um, no, no, I, I get that. I get that. But why, if you're skeptical about a belief system, why wouldn't you start with the hardest example? Because it's very, well, because, I mean, you wouldn't start, you know, running a marathon right off the bat either. You would try this is no. This is not a matter things. of training. This is, this is a show about philosophy. This is not a sports show, right? Well, so this, if people come to me and they say, um, uh, if I put forward this, this theory of ethics, universally preferable behavior, and uh, do, am I going to ask people to just give me the easy examples? No, I want the toughest examples, right? Yeah, and... Yeah, this is, like I said, this is something that's training, and I think you were also saying that it was not a philosophy, and I was saying it was more of a practice. So um, it is something you have to train for, and there are easier things, like it's easier to see uh, evidence of this going on in terms of a reduction of suffering 
for things that are not physical pain because physical pain is is very hard it takes a lot of training to to be able to deal with that all right there's an example of a um a young boy named isaac who was born with a congenital insensitivity to pain yes the disorder means he almost never feels pain even if he breaks a bone Mm -hmm. and because he and this happens of course with people who have um this is my Thomas Covenant, Stephen R. Donaldson medical knowledge. But uh, if you have um, a leprosy, of course, you, you go numb and you have to do what's called a VSE, a visual search of extremities mm-hmm. to make sure you haven't injured yourself. Yes. Because he doesn't feel injuries, his parents are teaching him how to identify them to stay healthy. He said the, um, the toddler years were an absolute nightmare. He would just drop to the ground and smack his face on the table. He thought the fall was fun. He's dunked his hand in hot coffee without flinching. He once placed his palm on a working oven burner without shedding a tear. And um, we don't consider that an ideal, right? Oh, completely agree. It would not be something that you'd want. You you would not want to be in the state where you could never experience physical pain. That would definitely be a problem. So you'd want to feel it and then stop it. Yes. Maybe or maybe not. But yes, to have a choice to do that obviously would be better than not. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the accumulated wisdom of the body with regards to self-protection is the result of billions of years of evolution, and pain is designed to have you not do stuff that is bad for you. Uh, I think the... Um, I agree. You know, Most just of just the time, saying, saying, well, we just have to interfere with the natural processes of the body and will away pain is... Um, it's sort of it's sort of like antibody in a way. I mean, I, I'm glad that my body gives me indications of discomfort or, you know, if, if, if I'm feeling nauseous, I don't like if I've eaten something bad many, many years ago, I had a um, pierogies that basically I think had been scraped out of the back of someone's bin lining in a fridge. I had these pierogies and I ate them and like 20 minutes later, I'm like, you know, feeling nauseous and throwing up. I wouldn't want to overcome that suffering. I'd want to throw it up to get the scrap out of my body. Anyway, I, I mean, look, we're way off in terms of what, what philosophy would would mean. But um, i got to move on to the next caller. I, I do appreciate the call, and I don't want this to be the end of the conversation. But um, I would like some, uh, you know, empirical claims of extraordinary nature are going to require some proof. Uh, I can't just go on, on the say-so of people who's, not you, but the people whose self-interest is quite considerable. Like, we can master pain and we can teach you to it. Just give us, you know, your children and some money. So um, if you could yeah. dig some of that stuff up and pass it forward, I'd appreciate that. But I will have to uh, move on. At one point, I'm going to get to the end of these callers. But uh, I really do appreciate the call. Okay, sure. Thanks, Tracy. Bye. All right. Up next is Rafi. He wrote in and said, we've been trying to find abundance, reduce or end pro- poverty, excuse me, and better distribute the wealth within the monetary system. I feel there is no solution for a fair distribution of money. Is there a solution? I'm presently working on building a free, a money-free world, no barter, no trade, also known as the gift economy or resource-based economy. What are Stefan's thoughts on this? Hello, hello. Hi there, Stefan. How are you doing, Rafi? I'm doing excellent. How did you uh, How did you get interested in this topic to begin with? Uh, good question. Uh, I had sold my business uh, in a big city, Montreal, uh, not too far away from you. And uh, I installed myself in a village about an hour away. And a year later, 
I don't know, I'm not sure exactly what happened. I just clicked and I said, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, what's the reason? First of all, I sold the business in Montreal, which I was doing still not bad. And I found myself in a smaller village, uh, nicer people, more calm, more relaxed, more friendly, but operating in exactly the same way as I've always been, which is uh, for 21 years, which is putting prices, putting specials, negotiating, bargaining, giving discounts, charging by hour and uh, something inside me said, this is not right. Uh, there has to be a better way than, than the, the way I'm, um, the way that everybody's operating. Uh, what uh, bothered me most in this way of traditional way of doing business is the lack of connection that I had with the customers. Uh, then I started going deeper in the philosophy of my way of thinking, and I said, why don't I charge? Uh, my kids for to repair. I'm, I'm a shoe repair. I, I fix shoes, boots, handbags, everything. So why don't I charge my my daughter to fix her boots? How, how, why is it free for for her? Why is it free for friends, for family, for loved ones? And I I I charge to strangers, to customers, as we call it. Uh, and I stayed with this way of thinking. Then I uh, I wanted to find a way to to respond to to fulfill that 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 something that, that the, the the thing that was missing in my life the thing that was that wasn't right that didn't feel right anymore so i had the idea of putting uh, my costs on the items i felt by doing that i would create a better relation a more connected relation with with with, with everybody else besides the, the, my loved ones uh, i would show them that i i'm i'm, I'm open hearted and i, I want to um, uh, people who, instead of basically, what I, my idea was to eliminate bargaining and putting specials, and the customer would decide what price they would they're willing to pay, and to learn to 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 learn also at the same time uh, 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 to be to to gain confidence between humanity between me and and, and others, and it's been uh, I I had the idea that I, I didn't do it I stayed with the idea for for about a year. So about a year and a half ago, I I dove and I I started putting changing putting my cost on on every single item, and for the repair part, uh, if the price is too expensive, I tell my customers to give me whatever they want. I'll still do the job, uh, and it's been a year year and a half now, and I'm I've have have transferred my life uh, my. Uh, in the mornings when I wake up, I no, no more no more think about no longer think about the bottom line, and I I just want to live the experience that I have to live that day. And it's been an ongoing thing. I'm, I'm at the moment I'm in two different movements of the creating the free world, which is the uh, free world charter and Ubuntu contributionism. And I'm very excited about this direction in my life. I've have never been this excited. And, and clear about where I'm headed and the way I, I the way I see the future, and I would like to have your thoughts on on this. Well, I like it. I mean, I I think it's great. I mean, I'm I'm not going to sit there and say everything needs to have a price tag while handing out podcasts like candy and asking for donations. I mean, I run on a gift economy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not. I mean, there's a little bit of freemium. You know, like uh, you get a couple of bonus podcasts and books if you subscribe or donate, but. You know, the vast majority of people consume without donating. And um, even those who do donate, not everyone, but even those who do donate often donate less than what I ask for, which is 50 cents a show, which I think is pretty, pretty reasonable. And um, I give away the books uh, for free and, 
I have conversations with people. I've never charged anyone for my time to have conversations, even if it never becomes uh, a show. And so I uh, steadfastly refuse to put a, a price stamp on um, on it. And of course, the churches run the same way. I mean, they, you don't you don't get a little little cross stamp when you when you go into the club and you got to pay a, a cover fee. I mean, you donate what you feel is worthwhile. I mean, some people, you know, some religions do have sort of suggested uh, donations. I think there are membership fees for synagogues, but um, a lot of the really important stuff in the world is not priced, right? As you say, you, you don't charge your daughter for fixing her shoes. Uh, you don't, uh, you know, if, if you go and take care of someone else's kids, you might charge money, but um, you don't charge your own kids money for taking care of them. So um, Wikipedia, of course, is largely a volunteer uh, organization that uh, accepts uh, donations and has become, I think, one of the top destinations in the web. Um, and uh, the degree to which ads are costs is debatable. You know, time time is money, but, you know, even on Facebook and with ad blocker and stuff like that, you can manage this sort of stuff a lot. The degree to which ads are prices, it's sort of debatable. But if you look at your day, I mean, you can very easily go through a day or a couple of days without paying for anything directly, you know, sort of in the moment, you know, pay for your rent or whatever and so on, right? But a, a lot of the most important stuff in life does not have a price tag, tag on it. I mean, things still cost money. I mean, if nobody paid you for anything, you would not be able to survive, at least in the sort of current environment. But I really like the idea and the degree to which we can measure quality through the gift economy. You know, I, I've always sort of thought that uh, movies would be better if you paid afterwards what you thought the movie would, would be worth. Right now, I know you can you can pay to go in, and I think within like half an hour or whatever, you can leave um, and, and get your money back. That's pretty rare. A lot of people are just like, well, it's comfortable. I bought popcorn. Maybe it'll get better. There's that optimism. No self-control. And um, I, I like the, the degree to which things could be made an after-the-fact gift economy. Um, you know, does that still involve money? I think it would involve something. But, of course, what, what I talk about in terms of money is, is cryptocurrency and, and so on, which would not have much to do with existing currencies as they're known. So... Um, I think the, the tipping after the fact, and this could just be because I was a waiter for so long. And if I got the tip before I, I was uh, serving the meal, I, I doubt it would have improved the quality of my service. Knowing that I got the tip afterwards made me, you know, make jokes and, and chat with people if that's what they wanted and so on, right? And well, um, let, let me make one thing clear, Stefan. Yeah. Uh, when I talk about gift economy, I uh, I don't have in mind of uh, of an alternative uh, monetary uh, system. Uh, I'm th I'm talking about totally uh, totally gifting everything. Uh, life would be free. Everything will be free. Uh, well, no, no, no. Hang on, are, hang are on. We, no, no, no. On don't don't start using the free word unless you're running for office, right? There, there okay. things aren't free, right? Everything, almost everything, takes resources to produce, right? You you can't just wave around free because that's unfair because then it's okay. saying that somehow people are stealing when they're cha charging well, you say right? everything takes resources to to build uh, yes but money is not a resource why is money not a resource 
because money is not real. It's invented. It's a belief. It's a it's a religion. We don't need money to to build a house. We need materials. We need resources. Money never built anything. Do, do you follow me? Well, I mean, uh, saying you just threw a whole bunch of stuff in there, right? Um, money is uh, ideally right. It's supposed to be a way of measuring apples and oranges. And so it's a way of, of measuring human preferences, human desires, human needs. And it's a way of allowing people to trade if they don't have what the other person directly needs, right? So if, if, if I want eggs and, and you want milk and I have milk and you have eggs, we can trade, right? It's, that's the same as money. Uh, no, that's not the same as money. Well, that's that's, that's me, direct trade. Money well, let explain, is... Let me explain Sorry, why go I, ahead. You, you want to say something while I was in the middle of saying something, so go ahead. Well, I, 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 could, I could say, I could it, I'll, I'll mention it after. That's an important point. No, go no, ahead. go ahead. I, get your thought out. Uh, I also include uh, trading and bartering as uh, the same as the monetary system, because if you're trading eggs, the egg becomes the monetary system. The, uh, it's, it's not, so it's also an, alter, an alternative way of trading. Again, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. Then you can't say, if you're saying that direct trade is money, then you can't say you want to get rid of money or money is a religion because that would be part of what your system would be, would be trade, right? Uh, the way I, I phrase it, it's, it's a non-accountable trade. Wait, uh, no, 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 no. Don't start giving me new language. I, I, I've got a problem already and that, that could be my lack of understanding. Okay. You said you want a society without money. Uh-huh. But that would involve trade, but then you say that trade is a form of money. No, that wouldn't involve trade. It, uh, so there'd be no econ- trade. Gift economy is not trade. Gift economy is just giving. We just give away our services. And we expect that others will uh, eventually give when, when we need it. So it's not a trade. It's not, it's not a direct trade. It's, it's a, that's why I call it a uh, non-accountable trading. Let's say you give me something. I'm, you're not gonna, if you give me a dozen eggs, I'm not, we're not going to keep track. Of, I owe you. Uh, something in return with the same value as dozen again, dozen eggs. That, that's that's trading. That's bartering. The gift economy is not about that. You're gonna give me the dozen eggs, and whenever you need something from anybody, either me or somebody else, you'll get it for free. So we, we're not gonna calculate how much you gave, how much you receive. Uh, just like we do with family members. I'm, I don't. If I if I buy a pair of jeans for my for my kid, I'm not gonna tell her, okay, you owe me a pair of jeans in the future or the same value to it. That's not trading. That's 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 gift economy. You have to get the definitions right. Gift economy is about giving, not not trading. Giving away. Okay, I, it, I think I understand. Now, I mean, the fa- family analogies don't work too well, right? They they don't work too well. I mean, why not? Because I don't change your diapers because you're an adult. I change my own kids' diapers because they're helpless, independent, and and non not not independent, right? They can't go do their own thing. So, if if I don't feed my two year old, my two year old starves to death, right? Yeah, but uh, if my daughter is 18 now and I'm not changing her diapers anymore, I'm still I'm still giving away my stuff. Well, are you saying that you will treat your 20-year-old daughter exactly the same as when she was 2? Uh in in regards of giving away stuff, yes, exactly the same. I I would still repair her boots uh, as if she were she was 2 years old for free. I would I wouldn't even think twice uh, of charging her. And that's exactly how I how I wish. Yeah, but she's she's your genes, right? I mean, this is this is what genetics does. This is what kinship does. That right? still it's, doesn't it's explain. It's that you you want to put resources 
into this is how evolution works, right? Is you want to pour yeah. resources into the genetics of the closest to yours, right? I agree. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good point, and that's the answer that I came with initially when when I asked myself, how come I don't charge my daughter? I charge customers genes, right? That's the obvious answer, but this, that still doesn't answer though, Stefan, because. Um, uh, it does answer the the, the the questioning, but let's go deeper on, on, on the answer. When you say genes, what is genes exactly? Is it because I feel more connection uh, biologically to my to my child, right? That's yeah. part, partially the part of the answer also. So if if you go if we dig even deeper, what happens if we we evolve and we we uh, how you call it? Uh, we become more conscious and more the oneness that we we feel more connected with the universe with with people with strangers. You you feel really the connection through the heart. So are, am, are we by doing that? Are we uh, increasing the level of connection with others? Like uh, I feel you, you feel connected with others way more than the average Joe does. So are we towards connecting with each other, just like we are connected to our kids or or, or our friends? I mean, the, the the gene argument doesn't doesn't stand because how come I don't charge to my, my 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 good neighbor or my my best friend? I don't charge them either. There's no genes involved there. How come I don't charge them? What's the, what's the explanation there? Well, they're proximate to you. You have a personal relationship. But here's, exactly. here's one of the yeah. things that, that money provides that is, I think, of, of real value, which is money is a way of restraining the near endless number of, of human desires. So I'll give you sort of an example. Uh, my daughter is, has her own money. You know, she, she does chores. She gets an allowance. And uh, she, so, you know, she's used to wanting us to buy things for her. And the great thing about this now is she can buy them for herself, right? Mm -hmm. So um, she wanted uh, two packages of crayons the other day. And uh, she was like, Dad, I want you to buy me two packs of crayons or whatever. It's perfectly fine. We talk about this kind of stuff. And uh, what I did say was I said, well, you don't, you know, you don't have to ask me because you have your own money. And she's like, oh, right. And then she started to say, ooh, that's kind of expensive, right? Because now she's spending her own money rather than my money. In other words, it was not free to her. Now it cost her something, so she began to limit what she wanted. And that's one of the things that money does, is it limits. We have to make choices, right? I mean, if I have X amount of dollars and I have a near infinity of things that I'd like to have or could have, I have to allocate and it limits my consumption, which of course is good for the environment and lets me help me prioritize and so on. That's one thing that's important. The other thing too, and this is an ancient economic problem, which is um, that uh, if you need surgery uh, and you know you can give the surgeon some eggs, I guess, but maybe he's already got eggs. Maybe he doesn't want more eggs. And so you have to find someone who has something that the surgeon wants. And I know we're talking about a gift economy, like you just give a bunch of stuff and then you go to the surgeon and say, operate on me for free and so on. And that, the problem with all of that is the stuff that is free gets overconsumed, right? The moment you reduce the price of something to zero, it gets overconsumed and you end up with huge shortages. So that's number. The third thing that's, that's important, and this is not to say that this can't work. I mean, if you want to get together with people and give this a shot, I think it's fantastic uh, as an experiment. But the third thing is 
How do you know without money if what you're doing is actually valuable to people? Right. That's and, and this this sounds like it's materialistic, but it's really not. So if I um, if I give you a painting that I did, you're probably going to take it. Right. It's, it's free. Right. So if I just keep doing paintings and handing out paintings and I never charge anyone any money for them, I don't actually know if people like what I have or really care about what I have. I mean, they may say all these kinds of nice things, right? Here's a tape of me singing Ave Maria. Okay. (laughs) Or here's an MP3. Fine, you know. But I don't know if I'm actually applying myself to that which is most useful and valuable and important to others if they're not bidding for me. And and this is sort of underappreciated. I don't mean by you. Maybe it's well appreciated and thought of by you. But... How do I know if what I'm doing is of the greatest service and value to others without price? So if, um, you know, if I open a restaurant and everything's free, you know, people will come through and eat and so on. But if I charge and then people never come, it means that they don't really want my restaurant that much. And that is that. So as far as not knowing whether what you're doing is valuable or not. Money gives you these incredible signals. You know, so if petroleum engineers are, there's a shortage of them, then of course the the price of petroleum engineers goes up, the salary of engineers goes up, and then more people will become engineers because that, and they'll drive the price down. So that that is a signal, the price signal is saying, this is important to people, this really matters, people really want this. And from that standpoint, I'll stop in a sec, but from that standpoint, it really is important to recognize if I'd been handing out my novels, then I would still be a novelist. But the market gave me stronger indications that philosophy was more important and more valuable to people than my fiction writing was. Uh, let's go point by point. The, or let's take the overconsumption uh, theory uh, that you, you mentioned. Uh, the, I, I call this the money, money mi- mindset. Um, I've had this conversation with uh, maybe a few hundred people for the last year and a half. So I'm used to the, that's why I call it money mindset. We try to <coughs> take the idea, the, 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 uh, the new lifestyle which the the money free world will bring and the, the the new mindset and since since we're not still in that mindset we integrate the money world with the new money world and we try to jam it together and we say it won't work yeah it won't work because we're still in the in the money mindset so uh the overconsumption thing just think about it stefan i mean you're, you're a super smart guy uh a world where everybody I mean, every the whole the whole world will will be working for free, and uh, first of all, overconsumption is usually. I mean, we, we don't overeat. I, I mean, obviously, we don't overeat healthy. Uh, we eat whatever the body needs naturally. We usually, wait, wait. Are you saying? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. Are you saying people aren't fat? Yeah, people are are fat in the money world because in the money world, we the food pro- producers produce food not for health reasons but to make money so when money is out what's the incentive for the person who to to make uh junk food what is the incentive there's no more incentive anymore so that that's going to go out out the window 
Who, who's going to work to make people unhealthy when there's no money involved, when it's a gift economy? Doesn't yeah, the question then becomes who's going to get food to anyone, right? Well, that's yeah. Well, that's another point. We'll we'll go to that uh, first of all. But for the overconsumption thing, uh, just removing money will be also removing a bunch of stuff that the the money world has brought to humanity. Overconsumption is one of one of the factors. Uh, I'm just going to throw out my way of thinking, and I won't go deep in it because I could talk about just about this for half an hour. Uh, for whatever you said, the value of something. Uh, I'm sorry, it, it is it is materialistic. Again, it's a money mindset. Uh, we have we've been taught from from birth that money it has value. So and everything we do has we we get uh, rewarded by with money. So I mean, it's it's almost in in my blood and this way of thinking. And it's been many many generations we we function this way. Money does not bring value. It, it it does, but it, it brings false value. It, it brings artificial value. Uh, real value will come in in the free world. And how do how will we know what's valuable or what's what's not valuable? What what is appreciated or what's not appreciated? We'll know through our relations. We we, we don't have relation anymore. We're not connected with each other. We're connected through everything is through money. Everything costs every everything costs something as we as we say. So uh, and our our whole focus, our whole. Uh, how you call it? Uh, point of reference is with money to to know value. I mean that's a very it's a very true and also a very sad statement. And that's the reason one of the reasons why I'm work, working so hard to go outside of the money money system. Uh, okay, and, and, so and so let it. me let me just understand that because I mean that's yeah. In a small community, I mean, I think you're entirely right. I think a smaller community would work on a gift basis. I mean, if you look at how the Amish put up their barns, everyone gets together and. Um, they put together a barn, right? A barn, and uh, they don't charge each other for it. It's just you know, I'll do this for you, you do this for me, whatever, right? Neighbors are like, oh, you're away. I'll pick up your mail, and then oh, I'm not going to charge you for any bill, right? So where there is localized community, I think that's uh, exactly how things work, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's you know reciprocal, and uh, it's with people you know, and it's arm's length relationships, and that I think works out very nicely. Um, my, my question is, how am I going to get bananas in Toronto? Uh -huh. how, how are you getting it now? Well, um, I buy them and, and people want to, they, they organize everything to get the bananas from wherever they, South America, wherever they, Central America, wherever they're grown. They send them up here in order to, to get the money. And uh, I value bananas more than whatever else I'm spending, could spend that money on. And, and uh, I defer or, or don't spend whatever else I would spend on to spend the money on the bananas. And that's why they organize to get the bananas to me. Well, you, you, you buy them, but it's not, it's not your money that's, that's uh, the, the people who are working on producing the bananas and the, the shipping delivery and the, and the stores who are selling it. Uh, up, up to that point, it's not money who's, who's doing all that work. It's the it's the it's probably the belief of making money and the value behind money is is motivating people, uh, but the motivation that people will have to produce the at least the essential needs uh, will not be money anymore. It would be no 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 you, you you're not understanding my question. So I divided the, our relationships into local proximal relationships, uh -huh. and then the reason I chose bananas is that. There's nobody up here who can grow bananas, yeah, right? I understand, yeah. So why would somebody in South America uh -huh. send me bananas? Well, that, that's exactly what I was saying. Uh, the, the same people who are producing the banana and shipping it here 
with the motivations of money would not will not be motivated with money anymore will be motivated as a, they will become human, humanitarian no but there's a limited number of bananas how are they going to know who to ship them to uh, order just like we do now so i would just go and order bananas and not, then they would ship not, them to me. not you personally the the in in each community in each uh, region there will be people there will be people in charge of food so they will be they will take care of the distribution of bananas it's not each person will order bananas just like stores like we call it stores now there will be distribution centers we call it let's say we call it that way no so, no but you you're just just you just just you're just putting words in and you're saying it's going to be exactly the same but with no money but what i'm pointing out is that there are close relationships because you keep saying with my daughter and my neighbors absolutely and i agree with you about all of that but those are close proximal relationships of reciprocity okay which i don't have with some guy who is uh, picking bananas in chile yes so the question is why is the guy in chile going to send me bananas uh well you say that you don't have the the connection with the guy in chile first of all maybe because you don't know him uh, he doesn't know you. He's he's far away from. I you. can't know but, that many people. Yeah, I know. But do we have to know people to to be to feel loving towards them? Do we have to know them personally? I, I, I mean, they are human beings. They have the same needs and same fears as us and same dreams. Uh, they want to. Everybody wants to be happy. So do I? Do I, how how? I mean, how close does somebody have to be physically for me to love and and feel connected to that person? Uh, you follow me? Yeah, but basically I, I don't, you're, substituting I don't, I don't, a, you're substituting an economic question of rational allocation with a Hallmark card saying, kumbaya, we should all love each other. But the problem is, even if the guy in, um, in Chile who's growing the bananas loves everyone, how is he going to know who to send his bananas to? He can't send a banana to everyone in the world, right? Uh, well, like I said before, uh, people in charge of community distribution centers will call them and... Uh, and get the order in for free. And everyone's going to say, we want bananas, and there won't be enough. Yes. Uh, if there's not enough, then there will No, no, have... there, there's not going to be enough. All human okay. desires are infinite. All resources are finite. Now, you can tweak that and say, well, people will, won't want more bananas than, than they want or whatever. But people throw out, like a quarter of Americans spending on food just gets thrown out. It's insane. And this is when people are spending their own money. If it's free... Yeah. Like, this is when people are spending their own money. They still throw out a quarter of what they buy. Horrible. Yeah. And what you're saying is if it becomes free, then people will only get exactly what they need. But that seems – that's never happened before. The moment you lower the price of something, the demand goes up. And that's not just – I mean, that happens with rats. And rats have no concept of money. That happens with monkeys. I mean, this is biological. We all want more resources because we don't know when there's going to be famine. This is just how our bodies have evolved, how our desires. And you can say, well, I want a different kind of species, but I think that's starting to look like a Soviet new man argument, which doesn't really work out that well. But the question is, how is the guy going to know who to send his bananas to? Because everyone's going to want them and he doesn't have enough. Okay, so the question is how, how not not that how is going to know how is going to know is people will call and get the order. The question is if there's not enough, what what will we do, right? There's not enough. There won't okay. be enough. Okay, there won't be enough. There's not enough bananas for everybody. First of right. all, uh, we, we one solution will be to reduce the orders, and but before we we come to that conclusion, uh, can't we produce more bananas? Well, you, there's not enough. This is, you're taking us. I'm. I'm asking a general question. It's not fundamentally yeah. about bananas. I understand. 
there won't be enough for everyone. Everybody would rather drive a Lamborghini than a Pinto, all right? Most people, right? Yes. And so, um, and everybody would rather have uh, some high-end tablet than some, you know, junky whatever, right? And, um, you know, how many people would, if, if the swimming pool was free, how many people would want the swimming pool? Well, a lot more. And so, um, e even if we could keep people's desires to exactly what it is now, when they're spending their own money and their desires are restrained by their own money, even if we could somehow remove money, make everything free and not increase people's demands, there still wouldn't be enough bananas for everyone. And so just saying, well, we'll make more of them is magical thinking because everyone who then goes to start making more bananas is taking away from something else. Then they're not growing cocoa or, or corn or whatever it is that, that they're growing. So you can't just sort of magically increase everything to infinity. Uh, otherwise, there'd be no, you know, we're in some Star Trek universe where economics are no longer necessary. Let me let me allow, allow me to deviate the questioning before coming to this question. Um, I mean, when we talk about a, a proposition of a new world, of, of any, any new proposition that, that involves big changes, we our first instinct is how we're going to do this, how we're going to do that. Is is it doable? Is it good? Is it, does it solve anything? Does it solve enough? How about the before we we come to the uh, the the questioning of the new system, new new proposal? Why why don't we question the system we have at the moment? Uh, right, you you can't me, possibly me, be accusing me of not questioning the system that we have at the moment. No, but, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm an anarchist for heaven's sakes, right? But let let me put uh, throughout this question before we come to the. To the new world uh, solutions, uh, do you, first of all, do you think that within a monetary system or, or any any type of system, monetary system, uh, do you think there's there's a solution that we will eliminate poverty completely on the on the on the on the, on the planet? I don't I don't see how that could possibly be a goal that would be moral. It's not a goal that will be moral. What do you mean? Well, it, I don't see how eliminating poverty would be a moral goal. I don't see, see how it could be a moral goal. It's, it's immoral? It would be an immoral goal to eliminate what? poverty. Explain. Well, I mean, what, what about monks? You know, what about people who, who are really minimalist? In, they want to grow their own food. They want to build their own houses. They don't want to accumulate stuff. I wouldn't want to go in and give them stuff that they don't want, which would have to be taken from other people. I mean... I don't think that the elimination of poverty would be even remotely moral because some people choose to live poor for whatever reason. This is their approach to life. And I mean, I'm not going to tell them that they're wrong and they have to change. Well, I'm not talking about monks. I mean, I don't see monks dying of hunger. Uh, I'm talking about poverty as poor families in the, in the world. There, there, are, there are billions. Oh, do you mean like completely starving to death stuff? Yeah, starving to death or just oh, that, that stuff, one meal that every stuff two could, days. That yeah. stuff could all be solved in six to 12 months. Easy peasy, nice and easy. Within the monetary system. Well, not in a government monetary system and not with governments. But if we wanted to, um, uh, <laughs> very, very briefly, if we got rid of governments, we got rid of borders, we got rid of foreign aid, we got rid of agricultural subsidies, uh, we got rid of all of the barriers to trade and productivity in this world, there would be no starving people within six to 12 months, if that, if that. I agree with you, but, but, but there's a big but here. Uh, do you see that ever happening? 
Yeah, of course I do. I mean, I'm not I'm not faking it in this show. <laughs> it's not smoke and mirrors. Uh, yes, it can happen. Guess... And the way that it happens is, you know, we raise children well. They um, outgrow um, restrictive uh, hierarchies uh, and they view government as uh, an anachronism. And uh, we um, we bring down these barriers through reason, evidence, argument and uh, peaceful parenting. So you think the controllers of today will ever let us uh, take back our power? No, because it's a multi-generational change. I mean, the controllers of today, uh, you know, if, if this were to suddenly be a giant movement tomorrow, uh, we would see repression the likes of which we have not seen since the middle of the last century. So, no, it would not. The rule is today. I mean, it's like any new paradigm generally requires the old paradigm to literally die off. It's like new scientific paradigms require adherence to the old scientific paradigm to, to get old, retire and die. Okay. Well, I'm glad I asked this question. I think this is the, this is the pinpointing the, where where our differences is with people who see money or alternative money as solutions. Uh, I don't see it that way. I mean, obviously, in, in a perfect world, in the in the best of circumstances and and good distribution and all you mentioned, there is, yes, there is a, there is a solution within the monetary system for everybody. When I talk about solution, I'm talking for everybody, not not for some people, but for the whole planet. Uh, but I don't see that happening ever. Uh, as long as money exists, money money is a tool of control. I'm sure you know this. And we are controlled with money, and we are manipulated with our with our uh, with our fears. We we fear the lack of money, so we many of us do whatever it takes. Uh, I mean, from from murder to business manipulation, advertisement, you know, to get in the customers, to steal customers from from. Uh, from our neighbors, from our competitors, and money, money encourages competition. No, listen, look, I mean, I don't, I don't want you to, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. If, if by money you mean fiat currency run by governments, God, yeah, it's horrendous. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a living cancer uh, snaking through the brain and soul of the species. I mean, you and I will be brothers in arms against this uh, terrifying and terrible system of central banking and fiat currency. But, I, you know, the thing is that in a free society, like in a stateless society, your approach is perfectly viable. And if you want to convince people and if you want to make the case and if you want to, through the success of your approach, draw more and more people into your system, as long as it's voluntary, I mean, this is my argument back to the, the resource-based economy people. It's like, if, as long as it's voluntary, yes. then I have, you know, more power to you. I'd love to be proven wrong. I, I don't see, you know, the the calculation problem identified by von Mises like over a, almost 100 years ago now that without prices there's just no way to rationally allocate or efficiently allocate resources of any kind which requires which results in unbelievable wastage and so on but i mean it, so i don't think that problem can just you know you snap your fingers and, and economists have been working on that thing forever and nobody's cracked it yet so uh, you know i think that prices are necessary um i don't want to force you to use money uh, or cryptocurrencies or whatever it's going to be in the future. I don't want to force you to use it. At the same time, of course, I would expect the same respect in return that if I choose to um, to uh, trade with people through a common medium uh, of currency, that I would be free to do that and, you know, let the very best system uh, win, you know, in the, in the marketplace of ideas. So as far as, you know, I don't have to convince you to use money because in a free society, you're free not to. You don't have to convince me to avoid money because in a free society, you're free to avoid or use money as you see fit. Mm -hmm. uh, in the cryptocurrency, <coughs> do, you, do you see us competing with each other, just like we do now? Well, sure, because there are finite resources. So in your economy, 
or, or whatever in, in the gift based economy, which is not really an economy, but um, in the gift based economy, you will be bidding for bananas, <laughs> right? And in the currency economy, uh, I will be bidding for bananas. And if your system is more efficient and gets the job done better, the bananas will flow towards you. And if my quote system is better, then they'll flow towards me and, and that will work out one way or another. So um, because resources are finite, um, you know, there will be an accumulation or a movement of goods and services towards one area or another. Maybe they'll somehow be split equally and so on. And, you know, if we could get to, you know, if, I mean, if money could be eliminated as a medium of exchange and everything be hugely efficient, then that would be an overhead that would be reduced. I just don't think that's possible. But the great news is you can like jazz and I can like soul. And we can both uh, get along because the music uh, store has more than one shelf, right? Well, resources being finite, that could be argued. And even if it was true that there are many solutions besides uh, implementing a system that encourages competition instead of, instead of cooperation, just because it's, it's, it's finite uh, doesn't mean, okay, we stop everything. Let's compete now for, to, to get that. I mean, I, for, for me, there's not much love and connection involved in that. And I want to be headed in a, in a, in in my my procedure, my everyday decision. Yeah, but you see, you're not understanding what I'm saying, Rafi. Is that as long as I'm, as long as in your world I'm free to use currency, just as in my world you're free not to. We don't have much to disagree about. No, of course you will be. But uh, since we're having this uh, discussion uh, to clear clear up some some facts, uh, as one of the facts I would like to throw, throw out is that the system that encourages competition at the same time that that will mean it discourages cooperation. At least at some level, right? Oh, no, 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 not at all. No, no, the vast majority of the free market is cooperation. The vast, I mean, just, just think of, of how many people need to cooperate to produce a tablet or, or a pencil or a car or a ship, you know, or a guitar pick, right? The number of people who have to cooperate to produce almost any good and service that you can imagine is incredibly huge you know there's a famous um, it's lawrence reed i think who wrote i pencil it's a famous you, you can have a, a read of it he basically is saying nobody knows how to make a pencil I mean, a pencil which you can get for a nickel or a dime nobody knows how to make a pencil you know the, the graphite has to be mined and the wood has to be cut and treated and the paint and the the little gold ring with the eraser and and i mean nobody knows how to make a pencil and that's one of the simplest and, and most ancient of implements that you can get for a nickel or a dime and nobody knows how to make it. The amount of cooperation it takes just to produce a pencil is truly staggering. And uh, the amount of competition in um, a free market is relatively minor compared to the amount of cooperation because you can't compete without a massive amount of cooperation in order to produce whatever it is that you're competing for. Well, you're talking about limited cooperation. I'm talking about worldwide cooperation, everybody with everybody else. For example, in, in my in my cobbler shop, if there were to be another another shop opening up next to me or in the same village, would I be in cooperation or in competition with that shop? So obviously, I would be competing. I would have to do probably offer better services. If it's I, I already do the maximum anyway, but I probably have to be careful with my pricings. To compete. No, I, yeah, it would not be. See. This is the this you've got this binary approach which which the free market doesn't really support. So, for instance, in Toronto, there's two streets that intersect, Young and College. And if you go west on Young and College, at least you used to. It's been a while since I've been there. But if you go west on College, you come across a huge number of computer stores. 
And they're mostly mom and pop outfits. I don't know if there's any big box stores there, but they're all these mom and pop outfits. You go in and they have like, I don't know, back in the day, EVGA cards, which used to be a big deal and so on. How many colors? 256? I'm blind. And um, they all move there. And they all move into the same neighborhood. Now, why, why do they do that? I mean, you'd think that if, you, if it was some brutal co- competition, you'd want to move away from all of the other computer stores. But they don't. They all try to move together. And wh- why do you think that is? Because the money's there. People go there to, to get that product, that service. That's where people go. That's where the money is. That's where they go. Because they're, they cooperate. Because they all go there to draw people in who, are try- who want to buy something. And then they, they, oh, of course, you know, maybe they'll only buy from one store or maybe they buy one thing from another store and another thing from another store or whatever. But that's a huge amount of cooperation. The, 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 you know, they compete in the end, but they cooperate, all cooperating together to bring the maximum number of customers who are interested in computers to the same place. Well, it's, I, yeah, it's called cooperation. I don't know. You can look yeah. it up and there's lots of economists who talk about oh, this I, kind of stuff. But. Yeah, well, that's, that's, I understand. I mean, we, we are, I mean, in, in the shopping center, in, in a mall, I, I used to be in a mall for 21 years. Yeah, I, I understood the fact that what there, the fact that there's like five other stores offering the same same uh, products as me, in a way, they, they we're also cooperating because since there, there are a multitude of choices, customers will come in that location rather than going to another mall where there's only one choice one one store offering so i see the comp- i see the cooperation there it's an involuntary and limited cooperation that that's not the cooperation i'm talking about the cooperation, i'm talking about not competing at all at any level right but the, 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 then you just run into the reality that resources are finite and you you can't get everything to everyone and it's going to have to be prioritized somehow it's either going to be prioritized by price or it's going to be prioritized by some sort of central planning, which is going to inevitably be coercive. And that's where this love and share and free dissolves into a horror show of central planning and coercion, as has happened with communism, as has happened with fascism, as has happened with some of the left anarchism that occurred in, in Spain in the 1930s. Uh, so you can, you know, if you keep up saying, well, we could just have everything for free, uh, you know, I think that that's not going to be quite enough to take away the natural reality and restrictions of the fact that resources are finite and they're going to have to be prioritized somehow. And the market does a great job of prioritizing them. And it's not that everything, I mean, some people buy stuff so that they can give it away for free, right? So some people go and buy a bunch of food so that they can open a food bank and share it with everyone. Uh, so it's not like it means that. But again, I, I don't want to continue any more on this simply because um, we don't have any fundamental disagreement. You have a form of social organization that you find compelling. And in a free society, you know, more power to you. And uh, I am skeptical about it. But there's really no reason for us to have any disagreement. I mean, in the realm of non-coercive endeavors, empiricism usually wins, right? So if your system is great and and productive and fantastic and everyone's happy, people will gravitate towards that system and it will end up dominating. And uh, if it's uh, it's not, uh, if it doesn't work, if it, then people will gravitate back to prices and we'll see, you know, as they say, the proof is, uh, is in the pudding. So I don't think there's any reason for you to convince me or for me to convince you uh, any more than it would be for, you know, me to say, you should buy this kind of food and you to say, well, you should buy this kind of food. Um, because we feel free to exercise our choices in a free society. 
if I can but we, we both share the same enemy at the moment, which is yeah, powerful yeah. central planning. Definitely, we're, we're, we're on the same system. team. We're on the same team. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, one one last point before you go to the next caller. Uh, talking about limited resources, I'm not. I'm not. It's not my strong point to argue that point. Uh, I, I I think it's very arguable if if we are limited or not. Uh, one example I like to give you before I leave you. Uh, you talked about having everybody would want pools. That's that's a good example. Swimming swimming pools. I'm sorry. Everybody would want what? Swimming swimming pools in, in their houses. Right, I mean, not everybody, but many people would order swimming pools when, when in in a, in a free world because everybody likes swimming, and pools. So, uh, what would happen in in a, in a free society is that the people who are uh, who do that job, who are qualified to build swimming pools, they would say, "Hold on a second, there's no way I could I could provide the fifty percent or seventy five percent of the houses with swimming pools. First of all, we don't have the resources, uh, the material probably to to give that much." to build that many and we don't have the manpower to do that. So what would happen in that case is we, we would we would we would create uh, community swimming pools, not not one, but maybe 10, 20 or 50 community swimming pools. Instead of building thousands, we will build 50, 50 really nice high tech swimming pools in which everybody can go and, 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 and swim and that we have the resources to do that. So there there are solutions in, in but but see that's the, but that's exactly what a that's exactly what a monetary system would do. Because the monetary system would say, okay, it's going to be $30,000 for you to have your own swimming pool, but you can get membership at a community swimming pool for 100 bucks a year. And people would say, oh, well, it's too expensive for me to build that. And so, again, if that's the rational thing to do, the price system in a free society would handle that as well. But I'm going to move okay. on, and, and thank yes. you so much for your call. It's always stimulating to look at alternatives to what is, and I certainly uh, have always enjoyed that process. I mean, I've got... Uh, free books uh, at freedomainradio.com slash free. Um, there's practical anarchy, uh, everyday anarchy. There's lots of uh, ways of, of thinking about what could happen in a free society. And I'm, you know, I'm the gift economy is a very noble and foundational part of the um, the economy as it stands. Uh, I read a book, uh, probably, this is probably seven or eight years ago, on the the free economy and, and how big it is. It's huge. The, the economy of things that you don't pay for, at least certainly through through cash, it's absolutely enormous. It's one of the top 15 economies in the world, if I remember rightly. So it's definitely underexplored and underappreciated. And uh, I would love to see just how far uh, it could go. So we're certainly on the same page as, as uh, that. Now, um, as far as, you know, things that aren't free, well, <laughs> that would be uh, my uh, um, uh, otter bladder uh, wax Mustache and semi-pirate goatee treatments. Massively expensive, of course, but I need that lush foliage wherever I can get it these days because, oh, you know, you go to the hairdresser when you're over 40, at least in my <laughs> state, and it's like, well, I can't do much about the top, but would you mind trimming the ears and the nose and the neck beard on the back and, <laughs> you know, whatever else is growing that shouldn't be. Um, but, yeah, so if you could help us out, uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate. We'd really, really appreciate it. We really, really need it. We have some fantastic guests and presentations coming up. These conversations, the technology behind it, the technology to record it, the research that goes into it, and uh, the general consumption of carbs that keeps it all fueled is entirely dependent on your generosity. So uh, help us uh, really make the case that volunteerism works and go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. It's really essential. We thank you so much in advance. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.